Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. Greg Lukanoff is, was trained as a First Amendment lawyer at Stanford, and very shortly thereafter, in uh, I think 2000, became the legal director of the newly established Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which was established to f- fight attacks on free speech and academic freedom in academia, of which there are many. In 2006, he became director of that foundation, and recently the foundation changed its name to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression because the attacks on free speech have become much more ubiquitous in society. And Greg is a passionate advocate for free speech throughout our society for many reasons. And not only is, is, has FIRE, as it's called, been involved in many court cases trying to protect free speech from both the right and the left, Greg has also been a prolific author. He wrote uh, The Coddling of the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt, which was a best-selling book. More recently, he's written, along with uh, Ricky Schlott, The uh, Cancelling of the American Mind. And I thought that would be a great opportunity to have a long discussion with Greg about issues of free speech and academia and society more generally, what the problems are, and what we might do about them. It's a sobering discussion, and I think many people who are not aware of how insidious the attacks on free speech have been especially how chilling it is for higher education, which has really been transformed and, in many people say, almost destroyed by the fear that people have about expressing their opinions, but now also more generally in society. So while it's sobering, we, uh, we, we discuss not just the origins of, of the problem, what the origins of cancel culture are, what cancel culture is, uh, but also his own interest and burgeoning interest in, 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 in free speech as a early uh, uh, nascent lawyer and even with his experience with the ACLU. And then we end up with talking about some of the things that we might do, he suggests we might do to try and overcome what's currently happening. While it was a sobering discussion, it's incredibly informative. He's, he's a lively and vibrant and very interesting uh, speaker. And I hope you enjoy the discussion as much as I did. You can watch it commercial free on our Critical Mass Substack site, or of course you can watch it later on on our YouTube channel, the Origins Project Foundation YouTube channel. Subscriptions to to the uh, uh, Critical Mass Substack site go to help support the nonprofit foundation. But you can also, of course, listen to it on any podcast listening site. No matter how you watch it or listen to it, I hope you enjoy and are uh, provoked and informed by this particular podcast with this remarkable man. And I also hope you have a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. Well, Greg Lukanoff, I, I am so happy to have you here. I, we, uh, as you pointed out uh, when we were talking before this began, we met a bunch of years ago at a Renaissance weekend, but I have been an admirer of yours for a long time, and I still am an admirer, and I'm so um, impressed with the work that you've been doing and um, uh, with fire, and I've wanted to talk to you for a while. And the, and the the publication of the new book, which is really taking off, is uh, was gave a good motivation for me to try and convince you to come on, or at least ask you to come on. I'm really happy. So we'll talk about the the canceling the American mind uh, in in some detail. But this is an origins podcast, and I, I'm particularly interested in your origins in any case. But I always like to know how people got to where they began. Um, there's some quote I had. I actually used in one of my books that something like the most important step is knowing how the traveler got to the starting place, uh, and um, and I want to know that in your case. I know that you uh, 
trained as a lawyer and, and you were born in New York. You now live in New York, so you're a New Yorker heart through and through. Although I live in D.C. now. You live in D.C. now. Okay, sorry. Yep. Okay, okay. And, and I grew up uh, in the Burbs. I was born in New York, but I grew up in the Burbs. Burbs of New York. And then and then you went to, a, well, before you, we talk about university, I'm intrigued. You became a lawyer. I don't know anything about your parents. What What's what's their background and, and where? And, uh, so I've gotten used to saying this pretty fast. Um, my okay. father is a, uh, is, is a Russian refugee, grew up in Yugoslavia and thinks of himself as Russian. Uh, my mother is a is Irish um, immigrant, uh, grew up in Britain, but thinks of herself as British, um, which makes perfect sense if you know either of those cultures. Yeah, you, yeah, you can't yeah. you can't wake up one morning and decide you're Serbian, but yeah. you can become British um, yeah. it, 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 in a way. Yeah, yeah. So that was the the the, the brilliance of the British Empire is, is giving people the illusion they could become British. Um, in fact, it was one of its pluses, which is often. Um, now you're not allowed to talk about it in history classes. But in any case, um, uh, as we might get to when we talk about censorship. But okay, so they but they were immigrants. They so how old were they? How your father? How old was he when he came over? He was in his twenties. Um, he came oh. over to uh, he got a scholarship at University of Wisconsin at Madison. Okay. Um, so, so that's what that's what brought him to the United States. And my mom came over to be a nanny um, because it was during the British nanny craze. Yeah. Uh, so realizing that uh, Mary Poppins plays a role in my being an American. Yeah. That's <laughs> it's, perfect. It's pretty it's pretty crazy. But it's, you know. it's all the serendipity is amazing in people's lives now. Absolutely. Um, but he, if he came over in his 20s, did he speak English already? Did he have to um, he came over to a school? What did he study and, and, and what brought him over? Um, he he uh, he had been he being from Yugoslavia he speaks seven languages pretty yeah. pretty damn pretty damn well um, yeah. and uh, but he so he was trying to pick up English you know after the war and um, he was a, a kid during uh, during the war and the uh, he came over you know to study economics but we we were we were whites in the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, yeah. The my my grandfather, not my great grandfather, my my grandfather fought the Bolsheviks. But oh. we, but and sometimes like in New York, people would be kind of like, "Ooh, aristocracy," and I'm like, "Not aristocracy. <laughs> we 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 were kulaks. We were serfs who made good. Like like mm-hmm. we we were we were serfs who were lawyers and yeah. you know successful business people yeah. and that kind of stuff." Um, so you know, we we go back to serfdom in 1858, and so we fought the Bolsheviks. We lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um and uh my, my dad was part of a, a an underground group that was trying to oppose both the nazis and the soviets mm-hmm. you know he managed to make it to the american zone of occupation in the 1940s and um you know that he came over um in in the uh in the 50s uh, to, to study economics here and he met my mom at a u.n company dance um uh a u.n club dance in in, in new york and they had kids, had a nice marriage for 17 years, got divorced because I never had any business being married in the first place, but produced, I'm, I'm the youngest of four. Yeah, you're the, okay, but you're the, now uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to still parse it a little bit more carefully because sure. you went to Wisconsin, yep. studied economics, yep. and then, and but he met your mom in New York. What, you, what got him to New York? Uh, when he came over, the first place he went when he came over was New York. Um, maybe oh. to Dutch just because where everyone goes yeah, and he brought his, my ancestors did too yeah he brought his little brother George you know, Yura my uncle Yura who died uh, yeah. a couple of years ago 
Um, and he and uh, he remembers spending his first night in 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 the U.S. On, on, under the George Wash uh, an apartment under the George Washington Bridge. Yeah. So he 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 lived up at 165th Street, you know, um, later on, mm-hmm. up until right before my uh, right after um, my sister was born. Uh, huh. But it was late 60s, and they were kind of yeah. feeling time to get out of New York. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So did he did he work as an economist or did he? Uh, my dad is an interesting fellow. He's he's very smart and kind of helpless in some ways. Oh God, I hope he doesn't hear this. Um, the uh, but he never he, he, uh, <laughs> he, he never never worked as an economist. Um, he kind of took for granted. He just I think he kind of thought that everybody had a good grasp of science and could speak seven languages because uh, yeah. he he was um, unemployed a lot when I was a kid. So we were pretty poor, um, for a lot of that. But when my mom divorced him, that encouraged him to Uh go, uh, abroad to find a job. And so he worked at the U S mission in Geneva on, uh, nuclear disarmament because he's very good at speaking simultaneously, uh, Russian and English about science. Um, so that was, that was about an eight year period of, of, of us doing a lot better financially, which was, did you move to, 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 to Europe with him or did he just send money? You lived with your mother or? Yeah, we, we lived with, the, my mom kept, kept us in the divorce. And so my mom yeah. went back to school to become a nurse. Um, and so she was, you know, a struggling nurse at the time. So it was nice to, okay. you know, it was definitely, we, it was a big improvement. But besides the interest in general, the reason that, one of the reasons I'm asking is, is, you know, I'm interested in people who have a, an intellectual bent and what, what sort of encouraged them reading well, you know, who in your family, was it your father or either of them encouraged you? I um, I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming you like to read when you were younger. Uh, I was more of, more of a comic book kid, but comic I would, uh, but I would sn- sneak off to the, um, I mean, okay, I'm, I'll confess reading, something. Comic books are reading, by the way. And that, yeah, I, 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 I know a lot of people say this, but I, I'm, I'm dyslexic, you know, so uh-huh. like the, 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 which just means I'm a slow, a slow reader for somewhat of my IQ. God, that's obnoxious to say. Um, okay. But, um, the, uh, uh, but, but, but at the same time, you know, I was kind of a tough kid, uh, yeah. you know, and I didn't want people to know I was a nerd too. So uh-huh. like the Very comic good. books, I would be more free talking about what they didn't know. What my friends didn't know is I would go to the library on Sundays uh-huh. just to sit down. Cause I, I loved the old, um, the microfiche with the old um oh, yeah uh, the newspapers yeah and and i would go to like i'd go to like you know world war one and read the actual present sense it's you know amazing. world war ii in the 1930s that was that was a great sunday as far as i was concerned was just hanging out in the danbury public library reading old uh, reading old news stories oh danbury okay okay yeah. okay is that where you live danbury eventually well for, for former hat making capital of the world yeah i yeah, know i since I, I lived in new haven for our, near when i taught at yale for a long time i know connecticut well but, yeah, worked um, at the mall and everything. Um, really, we're, we are now known for our mall. Uh-huh. Um, it's called the Danbury Fair Mall, which, okay. which we all took as sort of like a stab in the eye, because <laughs> we used to have a fair that you actually got time off from school oh, to go okay. to, wow. and then they replaced it with something that they had to, the temerity to call the Danbury Fair Mall, uh, which was like. But then, of course, we all complained about it, but we all worked there. I worked yeah. at Friendly's. I worked at Sabaro's. One of my, my best friends since I was three worked at the Sears there until he was probably in his late 20s, you know. Now, so, well, that kind of, um, yeah, and, and working in Danbury like that, and going, to the, going to the library in secret, watching the, going, reading the microfiche. Did, um, I read it because I used to like to do history. I actually did history before I did physics. And um, what did, did when? Did you um, 
I don't know what you studied at American University. What I mean, did you decide? I, first of all, I assume you already knew that you kind of liked history or uh, and that or at least the humanities and social sciences instead of sciences. Did you have any? I always wonder why people did, didn't become a scientist since it's yeah, no, no, I, for I, everyone. Well, actually, you'll you'll, you'll appreciate this. Um, my my son is named Benjamin for Benjamin Franklin, and my uh, my his younger brother is named Maxwell for James Clark Maxwell oh, because. Perfect. I, I'm a I I feel ashamed of of not going into science uh, myself, but um, uh, but at the same time, like my biggest passion was always history. Like like I always thought that I would. I actually even looked into getting a PhD um, after I graduated law school, but you know, couldn't do another nine years of yeah, of, I know of, it's, of, yeah. of, of studying. And so, like, I, I, history is one of those things that really always excited me. But since mm -hmm. you know the family business was international stuff. Um, I, my going to American is actually kind of a funny story. I started working in restaurants when I was little. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, it was really important to me to know how to be a cook. So I knew how to do something real. Uh, yeah, um, sure. Important. And I, I, uh, the summer after, um, high school, I worked as a cook out, out on Black Island, you know, like, huh. so I knew I knew how to do something. Yeah. And I wasn't totally sure that I wanted to go to college. You know, I like to read, but you know, that's not that's the same thing. thing. And, um, so I, I visited one school. Um, and I knew that one school had uh, journalism, which I was always interested in because I, I just think that's important and very free speechy um, and international relations. But, but with this, I want to have a special focus on Eastern Europe. Oh, okay. um, and I visited American. Uh, I told them what my scores were. They uh, gave me what looked to me like a free ride for the rest of my time there. So I was like, OK, so I, I never really applied to any schools. I just went I went to the one I visited. Yeah, and happens. I I feel mildly bitter about it though because they kept on every year they kept on chipping away at my scholarships, <laughs> and I was like, and so in my since I worked for the student newspaper yeah. in my junior year I wrote an article with the title I think it was something literally like was I baited and switched, oh. um, it, it, and they actually gave me all my money back in my senior year. Wow, Which that was kind before... of almost felt like a, a confession, you know? Yeah, wow, that's before going on Twitter and talk and and and, and using social media to get your way. You you, you use the campus paper. Use the old, the old brush. If I was a psychologist, I mean, there's a lot of discussion we're going to have about the problems of higher education. I'm wondering if somehow you that you had an axe to grind that was created <laughs> as a youth that <laughs> that somehow is in there in the back of your mind still. They owe me. That that you know that um. Definitely, it's one of the reasons why I, I, I'm not a big booster of American, um, yeah. which some of my classmates still get mad at me for not saying not saying yeah. nice things about it. I felt much better treated at Stanford in general. You know, um, the, the, the that's where I went for law school, yeah, sure. and you know, I I'd, here's the funny thing um, that um, I that was the most money I'd ever had in my life because the the stipend that they would give you for being a law student was just much more than I'd ever had before. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Well, so that's I, great. I had... They gave you a stuff. I didn't realize. I mean, I know in science, you know, when yeah. I went to my, my PhD, yeah, you, you get paid to do your PhD. I still amazed that anyone pays to do their PhD. But yeah. but I thought in law school, it was the other way around. I mean, my, but, my by stipend, I mean, no, sorry, and Stanford by, law school. I, I mean, living allowance that essentially oh. like you, you take out loans. But I one of the reasons why I chose Stanford was because it had this great loan repayment program if I went into nonprofit law. Oh. Um, and I, I that's how I, I'm able to do how I was able to work at fire is for, for so, the, until so I started. This is interesting. You knew yeah. now, did, was it one of these things where that influenced your decision on what you do afterwards? Or you always knew you wanted to go into nonprofit law? I wanted to be a First Amendment lawyer. I you mean, knew it like right the, away. 
Yeah, I, I went to law school specifically to do First Amendment. Um, journalism was one of those things that made me even more radicalized in the direction of yeah. freedom of speech because people come into your, if you're a student journalist or any kind of journalist, yeah. people come into your office all the time demanding that you punish that guy or this guy or whatever. Um, and uh, and you start realizing that if you want free speech in this country, it has to be, or any country, it has to be really broadly protected because if you make one little exception to it, people will exploit that to the hilt okay and we'll get there that's a lot of the one of the points there's so many points in the book i want to and and in your life that i want to cover in that regard so you you did your degree in history and it was it did you know you want to be a lawyer before you you know or did that arise at the end i mean or did it arise at the end of a of a liberal arts degree where you say well okay it's nice to have a history degree but i need a job and i want to go to law school is that it yeah Uh, it, it was a little bit of a mishmash. Um, a couple of things happened. Um, one, um, can I talk about this one publicly? My brother was arrested for armed bank robbery. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure, why not? He, he, he didn't do it. Yeah. Um, he, had, he had nothing to do with it, uh, but he did pick, a, pick up a hitchhiker who oh. did. Oh, okay. um, and the person who helped us get out of, uh, helped us out in that situation was actually Jamie Raskin, um, oh, who was then at Washington College. He was at American University Law School, and he helped us find a lawyer. But I remember that feeling of helplessness, you know, that I have, my brother has been, you know, falsely accused. He's being yeah. held by the LAPD. And that's something that really made me want to be a lawyer. Uh, the other thing was First Amendment. I, I, covered, I covered the Communications Decency Act. Um, for my like senior capstone, which was the attempts to ban indecency on yeah. the internet, yeah. which you don't have to be a lawyer to know that's laughably unconstitutional. Yeah, and then you know I also took took a practice LSAT and was weirdly good at it. Okay, so and uh, sure, why not if you're good at it? And it's and 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 but Stanford Law School, interestingly enough, as far as I can tell from reading your background, I was I don't know what I was going to say radicalized you. It radicalized you in the in the in the in the realization that free speech was was at risk, even in the one place where you would think it would be enshrined, and yeah, with a law school, and in particular your experience. So, so, why don't you talk a little bit about the Stanford experience and and how surprised you were at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, at American, I I I met a lot of rich kids. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really met like elite kids you know, until I got to Stanford. And I, and I have to say, I, I was, in, I, I was, I actually, no, I was going to say initially quite impressed. I'd say I continue to be like, like I, I, my, my joke is it was my first experience meeting quote unquote, decent, hardworking, rich folk <laughs> who was at Stanford because they were really, you know, they were really impressive. They, this was, a, this was a caliber of people from affluent backgrounds that I hadn't had a lot of experience with. Most of my life had been rich kids were lazy and stupid mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and the working class kids were the were, were smart and virtuous and hardworking and, and 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 american made that worse by being a place that was very heavy on on scholarship students oh, okay. um but uh but i get to I get to a place like stanford and super impressed by them um the weather is amazing it's a, this wonderful intellectual environment i'm making more money than i ever have just on my loans mm-hmm. um but one thing that was a little bit weird was that particularly, um, you know, some of the elite college graduates were much more, it was much easier to say the wrong thing um, and be pilloried for it than at any time I'd seen kind of in my life. And this was kind of like a, like a, at least a weekly thing that you'd see in, in the mm-hmm. law school, even back in 97, that someone would say something that at the time might be called mildly un-PC mm-hmm. and it would be a 
big moralistic deal kind of like a and nobody no nobody was brought up in charges at least not to my knowledge yeah but it was definitely already taking on this kind of like one-upsmanship kind of environment where you better watch what you say okay and that and that and that's i think that realization as far as i can tell stayed with you ingrained in you early on that 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 one has to be that that an environment of free speech and academic freedom and free speech that one tends to one would have thought one could take for granted has to constantly be defended and and yeah. in fact more and more so and and defended very poorly in nowadays in almost all areas as we'll talk about now and i took and i took every class that stanford offered on first amendment and then when mm -hmm. i ran out i did six credits on censorship during the tudor dynasty oh okay which which still informs a lot of what I, I mean the stuff on the printing press is largely from my 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 undergrad research my law school research and then i also interned at the aclu of northern california which was a formative experience as well okay yeah in fact didn't you also say at the aclu you found also a little surprise in in terms of uh, being a little less defending of of free speech than you would have imagined it was a disappointment. I mean, like this was like uh, like when I got the internship at the ACLU, this was like the was a dream come true for me. You know, like yeah. like this is the, these are my people, and and I was really excited about it. When was this, and by I, the way? Just so I know, what time? What was uh, nineteen ninety nine? This is after law school, or that this is in my third year of law school. Third third year of law school. Okay. So they're actually called externships when you do them during the year. Yeah, so yeah, so for, I just wondered when, what point in your formative career? Okay. Yeah. So. so yeah. It's in my third year, my first semester of my third year. Um, and on the first day I was there, I got dressed down by um, the gay rights associate for, uh, in a way that I didn't understand. Like I was talking about, I'm really proud to be working for an organization that would be, that was, you know, that defends everybody, even defended the Nazis at Skokie. Oh, yes. And I, and I got dressed down for that because, uh, and what he w was saying was, well, we don't defend harassment. And I was like, what do you, I didn't say anything about harassment. What, what, what are you talking yeah. about? And yeah, and 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 while I was there, by the way, Michelle Alexander, who, who wrote um, uh, the New Jim Crow, was yeah. at the ACL in Northern California while I was there, and we were all yeah. in awe of her. She's an amazing person. Um, but the the great, you know, free speech attorneys who were there were kind of like it wasn't where the juice was. You know, it, it, it was kind of we, we weren't the cool kids. You know, the cool kids were doing the racial justice and the gay rights project and the. The free speech was a little bit more, it felt like people were a little bit more mad on it. And that's when I really, it really started to come home to me that what, what I call in the book, the slow motion train wreck was underway. Yeah. That essentially the left, which had always been great on free speech and always been central to the identity of, of calling yourself a liberal meant to say you were pro-free speech yeah. as well, that that was changing. And particularly in elite circles was changing first. Um, and that you know, it's my job to do everything in my power to prevent that from happening. Um, and, you know, as I confess in canceling the American mind, we failed. Yeah, yeah, no, but, you know, you're doing what you can do. And, and yep. writing the book is certainly a step. Um, did you, I, I think I read somewhere, but I don't remember, did, did you go directly from Stanford to fire or I think, or did you practice before that? I think you practiced a little while before you went to fire or I, I can't remember. I, I, I did one year doing uh, patent law. Um, and uh but it was what it was looking for a first amendment job um because okay. i uh, you know there, there aren't that's why everyone thought i was nuts to hyper specialize in this thing that it's hard to find a job in yeah yeah and then fire was there miraculously it seemed like it was sort of a perfect fit and yeah and and, and 
did you seek them out? Did they seek you out? How did that work? They sought me out. Um, that was, uh, you know, uh, Kathleen Sullivan was the dean of the law school at the time, and she was kind of my mentor, or she is mm -hmm. my mentor. Um, and her old boss was this guy, Harvey Silverglade, who um, is, is a you know famous uh, defense attorney and ACLU guy himself. Mm -hmm. They had he had just founded um, uh, Fire with um, Alan Charles Coors back. Maybe in, we should uh, explain to the listeners what Fire is in case anyone is listening. Oh sure, sure. Okay, so Fire was founded in 1999, um, mm -hmm. and it was the foundation for individual rights in education. We're now the foundation for individual individual rights and expression because we want it to indicate that we go well beyond campus now. And that, that yeah. was actually an expansion that we just took on last year. Yeah. And Alan is a more conservative leaning libertarian who's an mm -hmm. expert of the enlightenment of, of, of Voltaire. Yeah. He was a university of Pennsylvania professor. Um, and he, you know, absolutely brilliant dude. If, if you do any of the great courses, his, his lecture on Blaise Pascal is incredibly inspiring. Like he, he's just a great mind mm -hmm. and, it, and his friend from Princeton, Harvey Silverglade, they decided since they started seeing problems on campus going back to the early eighties, um, and they just seemed to be getting worse. They wrote a book called the shadow university, which came out in 1998, um, Harvey jokes that I thought would blow the cover of the whole thing and solve the whole free speech problem on campus. Yeah. <laughs> And then instead, they got you know thousands of requests for help from all over the country, and so they founded Fire in '99, and I joined as the first legal director in 2001. Okay, that yeah, it was a match made in heaven, if there were a heaven. Um, but anyway, uh, um, and and then and then you became that was 1999. You became director in 2006 or 2007, or you became president I, I, or whatever. I became interim president in 2005 because I I mean. My dream job was being legal director of a First Amendment organization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when they when they actually asked me, I assume this isn't a family show, I can swear, right? Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, anything the, goes. The, I've, had Rick, um, I've had Ricky Gervais on, so you're not going to, you're not going to. Okay. Well, when they when they first mentioned um, uh, that I might want to be, um, when they asked me if I wanted to be president of FIRE, mm -hmm. my response was, fuck no, yeah. um, because I loved being legal director. Yeah. But. I I started getting worried that that you know anybody who hadn't didn't love the organization like I did or or really understand its nonpartisan commitment mm -hmm. um, would screw it up. So I decided to become I became interim in 2005. Decided that I I wanted to be you know my real job, not mm -hmm. go back to be legal director. So I became president in 2006, and I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, and growing it and and and. Yeah, and so it's not so bad that you ended up doing that instead of being legal director. I'm sure. I assume you still. Um, do you still in, in, get involved in? The, I'm, I can't imagine you don't somehow get involved in the legal issues as well, even as. as well, I do, uh, you know. But I got. I got to tell you, you can probably tell from my writing. I get a, a these days. I get a lot more excited about psychology. Um, yeah. I, I love yeah. constitutional law, but now yeah. I actually what I really would love to do. I, when when you you know when you have two specializations, yeah. um, realizing that these are there's this great body of constitutional law and there's this mm -hmm. great body of social uh, psychology, yeah. and that they don't really talk to each other and that yeah. they have a lot of things that actually undergird each other really well. Um, and if I had more time, I would love to actually be pointing out the, the various ways in which the uh, the, the the two fields actually complement each other. Yeah, and I I should say I know we have a hard a hard cutoff because there's so much I want to talk about. Maybe we can continue at some other point if we don't get through. But yeah, well I think the point is, and in a variety of contexts, that that modern the modern intellectual world doesn't necessarily mesh nicely with 19th century disciplines, and so um, 
one often sees the uh, you know this just like the marriage of psychology and economics you know would change change so much and and yeah. Dan Kahneman and others uh, pointing out that the idea that people make rational decisions is itself an illusion. Um, yeah, which, which people are you talking about again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have I have that actually I have that same problem when with um, and I, I just did a podcast and I've you know I've thought a lot about AI and the notion that somehow people say well, we got to have AI safety because we want to teach them universal human values and I keep saying you want to show me those universal human values and how it's going to be educated to find them because I can't see them. Anyway, um, speaking of universal things, though, before we get started, I, you mentioned that you mentioned one word, but I, I want to just talk about free speech sure. at the very beginning, because one of the biggest. I admit I, I was influenced and I was influenced by Hitchens here, not by the original author who talked about this, but the notion, the misconception people have that freedom of speech is it gives the freedom of the speaker. But that's really not the important part about freedom of speech. Freedom of speech, and I think it might have been Hume who first said it, but I learned it from Hitch Hitchens, was uh, it gives you the freedom to learn that you're wrong. And, you know, <laughs> you give a quote later on in the book that basically says the same thing, and maybe we'll find it when we get there, but that basically, you know, uh, if, you don't, if you don't allow free speech, then you never have the opportunity to learn that maybe what you're thinking is wrong. You want yeah. to elaborate on that at all or no? Well, I mean... It's Jonathan Rauch writes about this as well, and I didn't actually realize I was a Charles Sanders Purse fan. Um, you know, a, 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 yeah, I, me I, too. I, I had Jonathan on the program. He's a, we're both big admirers of his. Anyway, going yeah, on. and well, and fallibilism. You, you know, basically the um, uh, the connection between freedom of speech and liberal ideas and understanding our own shortcomings as beings. Yeah. And and that's what uh, I I don't think this is Harari's own term. I could have sworn he he um, he, he attributes this to someone else, but he thinks that we probably would have been better off if the Enlightenment was was uh, was described instead as the um, discovery of ignorance, because in a sense that really what it is is that it's it's this holy wow we are wrong about stuff like my 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 folklore my intuitions all this stuff they're all wrong if you actually test them is a moment of you know my my one five dollar word epistemic humility like the the yeah. moment when we're like wow and that changed everything um the the moment of actually realizing the grand scheme of things we don't know all that much was one of the most important realizations in human history and that we actually have to have mechanisms in place to know the world a little bit better and, and mechanisms to sorry go on Oh, and I apply this this thinking to everything, you know, essentially like so my defense of freedom of speech, my idiosyncratic def defense of freedom of speech, um, I call the lab on the looking glass theory or just the pure informational theory of free speech, uh -huh. which 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 is just simply and it's very much of a humanist perspective, um, which is if if the project of human knowledge is to know the world as it really is uh -huh. um, and and you have to understand and uh, you do but it was profound to actually understand this simply knowing the world as it is is a never ending arduous frustrating difficult process um and, and at a level that we that i think previous societies didn't fully you know um fully accept and part of knowing the world as it is is knowing what people really think and why and you you don't have any hope at all of knowing what the world really looks like without some sense of what people really think and why and this points out to me why censorship is such a foolish endeavor because it's depriving you of the knowledge of oh uh, yes uh, you know lizard people don't uh, who live under the denver airport don't control the world yeah. um that's a fact uh <laughs> but if there's also the fact that people believe that that's a yeah. very important thing to know about your society Absolutely. It's important. And what that the world is 
is a it's that the world that you know is just part of the whole world and and uh and and it's that part of free speech by restricting free speech you don't get any idea what other people are thinking right. without having any idea of what the other people are thinking you really don't know the world in which you're living i guess and and, nope. and i will say by the way that you know that i i that my last book i, I say the first long sentence is the the most important three words in science but it's really everything i don't, I don't know. know yeah yep. yeah exactly and and i think uh uh, that, you, when I think about the you saying the enlightenment of discovery of ignorance, it's really important because that's what we've forgotten. It seems to me at the heart. I, I made notes and I kept jumping. I don't doubt. I don't know. I don't know if we just seem to me when we when we'll get to talk about your solutions that that one of the things I didn't see explicitly there so much about what to teach kids is to recognize is to be is for teachers and parents to say I don't know a hell yeah. of a lot more and to realize yeah. that. You know, it's that sense of religious certainty, the secular religious certainty that is yeah. so pervasive now that in, that gets people to close their ears. And 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 you talk about the perfect. We'll talk about the various rhetorical fortresses that you've talked about being built up. But it's that fortress is built on the fact that you're certain. You know what the answer is, just like religious fundamentalists. But I'm yeah. going to be wary of trying to. Uh, talk too much here and not you so anything else about free speech so free speech is this discovery of ignorance in some sense is that yeah absolutely and and that's and that's just my idiosyncratic theory is the pure informational theory that, that you're not safer you're not you're not safer from the world for knowing less about it is one of the, one of those arguments that I, I make a lot but then then there's also the most basic you know ideas like the you know the marketplace of ideas which which i am actually critical of as being um you know about this much of the story of why we talk and the, and the value freedom of speech but um the place where the people are most suspicious of the marketplace of ideas metaphor tends to be higher education the one place where it's the most apt well the one, one place where it's actually supposed to make the most sense that it's yeah. supposed to be you know a battle about ideas you know discard you know striving towards truth by chipping away at falsity and now higher ed depending on like what department you're talking about and what school and what professor you talk to tends to be much more skeptical of this fundamental idea than at any time in my career. Yeah, we, I was I was surprised to read later on and people were even redefining that idea. Um, yeah. But I think that's why perhaps both you and I are particularly attuned to the academic disappointment because yeah. it's it's not that it's worse there. It may be worse there than anywhere else, but it's the place where you expect it should happen the least. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's antithetical to the whole notion of scholarship. And so when it happens, it's so much more disappointing there than you might imagine somewhere else where you might expect people to have to buy into something in order to, you know, make money or whatever it is they're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that awe and doubt are, you know, un unlike a lot of other people are formulas for good lives, but it's not central necessarily to the identity of a business. I think it's yeah. smart for, for, for a business to be, like, you know, to realize in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't know everything, but it's absolutely devastating and actually r renders uh you know some uh entire disciplines <laughs> at least parts of them um kind of dysfunctional it, it, it if essentially you know we think of a and i'm going to be somewhat critical of the studies departments at the moment Good. um th there's so much dogma you know in those studies it's kind of like listen here's the thing that you do with things that can't be questioned you put them in books and have people read those books, but there's no point to teaching courses about them there's no point to actually having dialogue about them if it's a dogma read the book, see what you think. Um, but that's not, you know, un unfortunately for some of the more politicized um, and originally politicized ones, it is supposed to function more like dogma.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, okay, good. Um, but you just brought up something else before. I want to actually begin with some examples as you do in the book, because one of the illusions that some people have is that this idea of canceling of the American mind, that cancel culture doesn't exist, which is a, it's one of these amazing fallacies that that we yeah. need to overcome. But but you just mentioned something else, and I don't remember reading it anywhere in the book, and I want to ask you about it, um, because you said your first experience was of this. Um, um, when you got in trouble talking about you're really happy the ACLU defend you know defended the right of in Skokie people to to the Nazi party to to march, and and someone says we don't defend harassment, and yeah. and one of the things that I I I, I I'm particularly aware of maybe because of of writing and other things, but I don't see here is this illusion of harassment, this mm-hmm. this legal notion of harassment that somehow saying something I don't like is harassment and mm-hmm. and there's no sense in which that the the original meaning of harassment is has been preserved and so that what that guy said that time is that somehow nazis marching and saying whatever they want to say is somehow harassing people who have the choice to not listen which yeah. is therefore you know to not go watch the march it's like uh, you know uh, i mentioned that ricky gervais was on this program but one of his f- jokes that he gave there which is one of my favorite jokes when he said it's like saying that you're being harassed by that is like going to the public square and seeing a sign someone saying guitar lessons and you phone up the person and say i don't need any d- damn guitar lessons <laughs> <laughs> and, and and uh uh in any case talk to me a little about harassment and the abuse sure. of that okay. yeah so this this is something that um you know uh, is incredibly clear from my my daily work and over the past couple of decades but most yeah. people won't know is that harassment was because uh, so sometimes if people know a lot about this topic, um, most people and most people know nothing about it. Yeah. Um, they might be familiar with the speech code movement of the '80s and '90s, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that they remember that there were these speech codes that were passed and they were terrible, and everyone laughed at them and they were defeated in court. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they often don't know is that every single one of those were harassment codes. Um, they just redefined harassment as speech that offends me or offends one. Um, and it's like, okay, you're magically changing the term. Um, we, we wrote an early paper, maybe back in like 2002, just saying that doesn't magically inoculate you from uh, constitutional scrutiny, dubbing it harassment, but from a psychological standpoint, particularly for those of us on the left, it really did because Mm -hmm. immediately, because I started Stanford two years, just two years after the Stanford speech code had been defeated in court. Okay. And the Stanford speech code was harassment um, extended to the idea of anything that might victim uh, victimize or stigmatize somebody subjectively. Um, that essentially, if you feel victimized or stigmatized mm-hmm. by that, you've been harassed. Um, but meanwhile, what, when this would come up, when people would talk about the harassment codes, I was a good liberal and being like, no, no, no I don't I, I don't think people should be harassed. I don't think people should be racially uh, mm-hmm. harassed or, 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 or women should be sexually harassed. But it was this kind of control of language, you know, idea that, that, that essentially if you dub this, if this isn't a speech code, but a harassment code that just happens to actually implicate speech, it's much easier from a political and psychological standpoint to get away with it. Yeah. Courts never fell for this, by the way. Um, it, it, Avery Cohn seemed to want to in, mm-hmm. in, in 1989 Doe v. Michigan case, but still. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, But this was an idea that... Um, 
that was developed in the 1970s of, of using harassment codes as ways to become speech codes. The, one of the first uh, big articles on this was Richard Delgado and others. Um, a 19, I think the original article was 1980, Words That Wound, of mm -hmm. proposing a new way to go after speech um, that might be racially offensive or sexually offensive um, by by reimagining it as harassment. And when the and this is this is amazing when you when you land this stuff up in time, um, uh, the free speech movement, 1964 um, in, in Berkeley, um, by 1974, uh, the free speech movement had been wildly successful already yeah. with the final two parts of the sort of Supreme Court equation of, of, of four dominant cases, that, that being Sweezy v. New Hampshire, which establishes academic freedom. Kishian, which says no um, no loyalty oath for professors. Um, uh, the Healy v. James, which said you can't um, refuse to recognize a student group, even if, by the way, even if it promise, does, won't promise to not engage in violence, but uh, mm -hmm. because of the bad behavior of, of previous groups. Mm -hmm. And Papish, um, which, which is a case that involved a cartoon um, uh, with police officers raping the Statue of Liberty. Mm -hmm. And in that case, they actually said, like, listen, we can't ban something just because it's offensive on a college campus. So um, after those four, you know, cases were established, the the protections of free speech and academic freedom were very strong in the United States. By 1984 and 1985, campuses across the country were passing speech, speech codes, um, which is a remarkable success for the sort of Richard Delgado wing of, uh, of higher ed. And they were all conceptualized as harassment codes, sometimes a little bit of the fighting words doctrine thrown in. Um, like I said, courts did not fall for this. It was they were defeated in decision after decision. Sort of like the fever for enlightened censorship kind of started to, to dissipate as you got closer to the mid '90s, um, and everybody thought, "Oh, thank goodness, that's that's mm -hmm. all done for." Yeah. But unfortunately, it just uh, the the students and the faculty became less enamored with enlightened censorship, but the administrators kept on chugging. Yeah, that's right. And and you know, you've done you anticipate, of course, you know we. I, we in the book, you go through the history of this, the different periods of 64, 74, 84, 2007, yeah. and set 2007 to 2022. And, and I want, because it's interesting to see that evolution and, and where we get to today, and I think it's important that your book and, and we discuss the, the sad situation today, just to point out that this is an illusion. But, what, but I can't resist, based on what you said, asking one more question, because sure. this seems to me to be at the heart that somehow the notion that saying, even saying something offensive once to someone is harassment. That's also a different, my understanding is that harassment in the real legal sense is a pervasive, continual. Yes. So just saying something offensive once, even, even, even that, even if you want to define harassment as offense, it's not harassing because it's just right. a one-time thing. And, and, yet, and yet somehow, I, I think if you went around and asked most people, yep. whether it's harassing to say to someone, you know, you're short or something like that, I mean, um uh most people would say yes yeah no and, and that's and that's been you know a, a shift i think you know 20 30 years ago people would be like no harassment they they wouldn't necessarily have the the right vocabulary for it but they'd be like no it's a pattern of behavior you know it it, it it's a it, it's bugging someone a lot <laughs> it, yeah. it is more or less what harassment means but there's been a you know a shift on that term that's been very intentional we call it the anti-free speech movement you know, um, and it starts with people like Herbert Marcuse, uh, yeah. you know, on campus, but then is really picked up by 
interestingly, you know, a lot of the founders of, of critical race theory. Yeah, now, of course. What, what, what's funny about this, of course, is that Fire, you know, went to court to defend the right to teach critical race theory. Uh -huh. um, at, and uh, we, you know, defeated in the Florida. Stop Woke Act, you know, it, in, in court because it was unconstitutional. And, yeah. we, and that's that's what we do. Yeah. Um, but I do want anytime someone mentions critical race theory who's supportive of it to also add the caveat. And by the way, which is the very first thing that the founders of critical race theory did when they got together was propose speech codes, which were then passed at schools across the country, um, because it is it's not a free speech friendly philosophy. It's, it's not a liberalism friendly philosophy it's by its own explanation. Yeah, to the extent that it is anything. Yeah, it is neither liberal nor free speech nor yep. sensible nor historically <laughs> appropriate nor scientific nor anything. But but, let, but a great just, way to win arguments without winning arguments. Yeah, exactly. And I want to yeah, we're I, we're be dancing around. I want to get to because you know, you you give specifics for a lot of this and I want to try and get to it. Um but let let me just at least lest people not think we're in a in the current situation um um, 84% of Americans believe it's a problem that some Americans do not speak freely in everyday situations due to fear of retaliation. 2020 poll found 62% of American adults of all political persuasions did not feel comfortable expressing their origins in public. 32% worried they'd miss out on job opportunities or get fired if their political views became known. From 2014 to 2023, Fire knows of more than 1,000 attempts to get professors fired, punished, or otherwise silenced. About two-thirds of these attempts are successful, resulting in consequences from investigation, termination, and even unsuccessful attempts uh, matter because they're more than sufficient in chilling, chilling speech. 16% um, of professors said that they've either been disciplined or threatened with discipline for their speech. 29% said they've been pressured by administrators to avoid controversial research. And it's especially alarming that this is concentrated in the most influential universities of the country. These are these Wildly are, um, disproportionately, these by are the just way. some statistics early on in the book to give a sense of the uh, of the problem. Now, um, um, let's but yeah, before we get to the history, and and I will say before I forgot, I was telling you that I was also, you know, the second time we met, you won't remember because you wouldn't have remembered so much because you were on stage. But I came up to see afterwards was and you and Jonathan was when you and Jonathan were on stage in New York City at the Y uh, mm -hmm. talking about co uh, coddling of the American mind. And I was shocked. And I don't know if Jonathan still admits to this, but he said in that lecture that he ch has changed the way he taught at least one whole part of his syllabus for fear of getting fired. Oh, yeah. No, he, I, you know, I, 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 I would have thought he'd say, I'm going to stand up, from, but he's actually changed his. Uh, so, you know, this even people who speak out against it yeah. are terrified. Absolutely. And I think and I important. and I appreciate him doing that. Like he, he he's actually saying, listen, I, I, I know what the rational response is here. Um, yeah. And I'm and, I, you know, and the, the environment has become the extent to which, you know, professors admit to being afraid of their own students is scary. Now, here's the here's the dirty little secret, though. They're not just afraid of their own students. They are afraid of their students in collaboration with some administrators, yeah, because some like Sometimes people misunderstand kind of like one of the points of my previous book, Coddling of the American Mind, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, I, in my first book on learning liberty, I talk mm -hmm. about how the primary threat to freedom of speech on campus is the are the bureaucrats are, are, are the giant speech are. policing, you know, an absolute yeah, uh, bureaucracy. 
but then in coddling and in my short book freedom from speech we talked about a new sort of uh, cohort of students showing up who are much less uh were, were much more hostile to freedom of speech i was lucky enough for uh, for the first part of my career to be dealing mostly with the kids of boomers who are actually really good on free speech yeah and then that changed dramatically in 2013 2014. but sometimes people think oh the problem used to be administrators and now the problem is students i'm like no 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 no, no. that's not what we're saying at all the problem like the reason why it got so bad is it's it is that administrators were pretty you know at least some of them were pretty eager to clamp down on free speech they didn't like and suddenly they got a much more willing cohort of students and together woof, man yeah and well, then you and see then the result what, and then i mean as one who was been in the was in universities for 40 years the uh, something i'm not sure again that one can appreciate so much from here because you're seeing from the outside is that it's not just administrators what happened is it's this cancer it's this self-fulfilling thing because in a few administrators start and then the administration gets bloated so that the so that all of the subsequent hires and then ultimately the people that are in control are not the necessarily necessarily the people who originally may have had been well-intentioned in creating this police they're they're not they're not in control anymore there's this massive infrastructure that's been created and self-perpetuating because yeah. bureaucracies are and it's in the interest of bureaucracies to to point out the problems otherwise they otherwise they wouldn't do it i mean heather mcdonald's talked a lot about that in her, in her book yeah. too that you know it's important that if you if the universities didn't claim that you know that every student was being sexually harassed by every other student they wouldn't be able to keep in business the bureaucracies um yeah. but let's let's um yeah so that is a problem and we'll talk about when you talk about your solution so i hope we'll get there um mm -hmm. but let's start with your definite i mean for people who again are coming at this from outside well-intentioned but maybe not aware of it one of the first things you talk about is the definition of cancel culture so yep. so and and i guess you say that Jonathan Rauch's definition is is the best, but why don't you talk about what your you know how you view cancel culture? Yeah, Rauch's um uh, you know Rauch's definition I, I think is the most precise. Um, mm -hmm. I actually tend to think ours is the best because it's simplest actually. Yeah. Um, but it's a, but it's also uh, you know true to my interest. It's a it's a historical definition. Yeah. Um, that essentially it's the um, uptick in campaigns to get people. And it, it, when we say uptick, I got took some flack for it. I was like, well, it's just an uptick. It's like, well, no, yeah. that's to to recognize the, the 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 obvious argument that well, people have been canceled in the past. You know, it's like, well, <laughs> if you mean they've been shunned or punished for speech, then of course they have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it but but there was an uptick in campaigns, and that's an important part of it to get people you know punished fired deplatformed um expelled for speech that would be protected under the first amendment by which we explain we mean as an analogy to, to public employee law which introduces a tremendous amount of common sense um and and and, and rationality to to, to to the definition um that began in 2014 and accelerated 2017 and after and the culture of fear that results from it it's a kind of a lawyerly definition um, but that's that's our definition of cancel culture because we're trying to get people to think about it the same way as people think about other mass censorship incidents in American history, whether that's the, the 1798 Sedition Act or the Victorian era, much longer, obviously, mm. or, or the, the the first Red Scare, which was surprisingly yeah. short. Um, a lot of people don't know it that. It is surprisingly short, and you think of it, it's so it's amazing, and it's and as you point out, in terms of its impact, it's impacted far fewer people. In spite of the fact it's huge and movies have been made about it far fewer people yeah. than the current uh yeah whatever scare well, the, you the, want to call it the, the second the second red scare you, you know that's mccarthyism and that's yeah. about 11 years yeah. um and, and but still you know like when we when we go through those numbers we're talking about 
you know, um, to our knowledge. And we're very clear that um, that there are secret hearings, with, um, yeah. which we hear about all the time at FIRE. There's yeah. been books written about this. You I've know, seen this, Oh, I know. Um, every professor has yeah. um, this massive sort of like title and apparatus, which, by the way, polices speech. It doesn't just police, you know, inappropriate interactions with um, uh, sexual interactions with 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 coworkers and staff mm -hmm. and and uh, and coeds. Um, it polices speech, and 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 at fire, we're on the receiving end of calls about what do I do in the circumstance? You know, they won't let me have a lawyer. They won't let me know what I'm charged with. Um, and, you know, we do our best to help. So the fact that we know of, you know, 200 firings with, uh, uh, you know, uh, 40 plus of those being tenured professors since 2014, yes. I mean, to put it in perspective, like that's twice as many professors who were fired uh, under McCarthyism, at least by the the best study conducted at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you make a point that in, in a variety of different estimators, it's two, three, four times as significant in, in terms of impacting um, directly on people's lives than, than McCarthyism. And, and, and nothing even vaguely uh, close to it since the law was established, by the way. And that's one thing I always have to point out. It's like, could people be like, oh, the higher education industry was smaller in the 1950s? Absolutely true, no, no doubt. Mm -hmm. However, it wasn't clear that you couldn't fire somebody for being um, a communist back in the 50s. And by the way, a lot of university presidents said, these guys are crazy ideologues. They're, 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 they're completely doctrinaire. Of course, we're going to fire them. What was basically the defense on, on, on a lot of these things. Um, and it was only 57 that it became clear that you couldn't do that. Hmm, yeah, that's, that, that's uh, remarkable. Um, and it, the, the um, I would say you just, uh, I just forgot what I was going to ask you there about that, because it's, it really is, uh, uh, oh yeah, you, you you point out it's more insidious in a way because the McCarthy McCarthyism was externally imposed, um, yeah. whereas whereas the current culture is internally imposed, and you know so it was imposed upon academia by whoever you want, whether it's McCarthy and a bunch of uh, rabid Congress people. But this one is not coming from the outside. I mean, in certain cases, certain parts of cancel culture is in Florida, you know, yeah. the right legislative part is, as you talk yeah. about. But the left part is inter is internal. It's coming yeah, from no, within, and therefore more more worrisome. So we 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 break it down on, on like the political um uh, like the political leanings of like where the different attacks come from, and of that uh, of the punishments handed out for um uh, for speech among these professors, about one third of those initially start on the right. And, and that's important. And we're, yeah. you know, we, we take a lot of flack from the right on this and like, nope, yeah. sorry, like we're going to, we're going to say, we're going to follow what the facts say now. Uh, and what do we mean by on the right? That almost always is off campus because there just aren't that many people on the right mm -hmm. on most campuses. Um, sometimes it stops, starts as Fox News, Turning Point USA, for example, you know, Todd Starnes at Fox, sometimes like the Carl yeah. Newman Society or something like that. Um, but, you know, I have also I also do uh, allow that the person actually doing the firing still is usually someone on the left um, mm -hmm. when it comes to, uh, you know, the people on the right, because the, the, the left are utterly dominant among administrators and professors in, in higher ed today. But we do we, we are very clear there is a threat from the right and it tends to come from you know, comes from off campus. But when it comes to threats from the left, and this was very interesting, we did, we did an interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones about her case at, at UNC um, Chapel Hill and which fire defended, you know, 
proudly when they're saying that she you know couldn't get tenure because a donor didn't like her politics we're like you know we we, we will absolutely fight well, this you case. know in these cases you and i know why don't you just mention that case I, I, you know i don't want to go into too much about there's you know when we could spend eight hours giving every every case yeah. example but why don't you why don't you mention her example just so people so get an that, idea and this is the case that, that you know on, on severity you know i'd probably place it like maybe a six because it yeah. was this kind of unusual circumstance where unc chapel hill had this like uh, honorary professorship thing that, that that basically was like an award, but then you become a tenured professor at UNC Chapel Hill School mm -hmm. of Journalism, which is kind of unheard of, to be honest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and she won it, but they didn't want to give her the tenured professor part because a donor was like, "Nope, no, we're, we're, we can give the give the award, but we're not giving the tenured professorship." And from a you know a First Amendment perspective, we're like, "No, actually, sorry, like you, you can't treat someone differently on the basis of viewpoint." Yeah. So we we defended her, you know, in that case, and we we did an interview with her afterwards, and it was, I I, I think people should watch the interview because it, it's kind of funny in one way, in that she's very aware of the attacks from legislatures. And by the way, there's been one law um, in the entire country that directed that went after curricular decisions in higher ed. The only one that was clearly unconstitutional was the Stop Woke Act, mm -hmm. which fire so far is defeated. It's on appeal. We'll defeat it again. But I, I emphasize this because you might be surprised here. There's only been one um, yeah, that hit right. higher higher education. Um, That's interesting. But but when it came to the students demanding that professors be fired. Um, well, that was okay. You know, like that was kind of no big deal. Like, like they're, they're, they're there to, and it's like, yes, because they're, because you agree with them. And by the way, I feel like a lot of times, um, uh, people hide behind the students when really, like I said, it's not actually just the students, it's administrators being like, Hey, you know, um, this happened at, at Sarah Lawrence college. Mm -hmm. Sam Abrams, just to give this one example, because I think it's very uh, revealing. Sure. Sam Abrams, who uh, who is a statistician, um, he's a professor at um, uh, at Sarah Lawrence College. He wrote an article in the New York Times, making a very grounded, basic argument um, that for, uh, from his additional research showed that uh, administrators were even further to the left than professors, and more monolithically so something like 12 times as many, you know, um, administrators from the left than from the right. And should that, and it was in the New York Times, should this have been controversial? No, everyone knew this. It just, you know, it was just a question of severity. Suddenly, students, for some reason, um, start protesting um, Sam Abrams, even though students aren't really mentioned um, in the article, <laughs> just coincidentally, um, they and they vandalize his door. They they do all sorts of things that he's going to be writing more about that are pretty terrible. They mm -hmm. take over the president's office, which, by the way, I think was another case where it was catered, <laughs> so it wasn't really an unfriendly takeover of the um, uh, of the president's office. Uh, and they demand that he be fired. And as far as like something be a tell that it's like, no, administrators clearly put them up to this. It's because it wasn't even about students. It was about administrators feeling like, oh, this is an attack on us. We got to get rid of this squeaky wheel. Fire got involved. We we helped with the case. Um, he's still at uh, at Sarah Lawrence. But talk about it. Just something that's like, OK, yeah, I see what's going on here. Administrators are defending their turf um, in this case and putting students up to doing their dirty work. Yeah. Well, or or yeah. Well, in fact. Boy, every time you say something, it prompts like six things in my mind. Well, it'll be interesting to see if we get, how much we get through. I will say that we need to. It, point, it is interesting to point out. You say yes, there are things on the right. Roughly thirty percent come from the right. 
and I don't know if you were attuned to this much before me. You know, I come from the left, the political left. Same. I'm now I'm now called a right wing pundit all the time because I defend things like free speech. But but um, aren't we all? <laughs> but it, yeah, but it's amazing. But I remember I used to write during the uh, when Bush was president. I mean, I, I I wrote as a scientist about science policy and the efforts to shackle scientists. And you know, I all I at the time it seemed to me that they're the real villains for from the right. And it's been a it's been a an epiphany to see you know over the years that uh, uh, that that in fact that that's a small fraction of what's going on. That the left is unfortunately. Uh, and, and you know at, at fault and one of the things you talk about when you talk about the perfect torque fortress or the, even the efficient one is that people like you and i are now claim to be conservatives because we happen to criticize certain things that the left are doing and therefore we're conservatives and therefore it doesn't matter what we say it's not worth listening to yeah and so. well and, and that's something we, t- we talk about uh, so in, in terms of things we're trying to do in the book one is prove cancel culture is real, which seems asinine to have to do, but there are still people out there claiming it doesn't exist who basically, as far as I'm concerned, no one should ever listen to again. (laughs) Um, You know, show with data that it's real. Yeah. Um, But then part two is to get people to reimagine kind of what the function of cancel culture is and how it works in like knowledge producing industries. And cancel culture is just the meanest, nastiest way to win arguments without winning arguments. Um, That essentially I could try to persuade you, I could disprove your argument, or I could make you too scared to make it or get you fired from your job so you don't have a perch anymore to make it. And that's cancel culture. Um, But we try to get people to think about it as part of a a, a giant um, uh, panoply of options to defeat your opponent uh, without addressing their argument. And so in the book, we talk about what we call the uh, the, the uh, uh, obstacle course, which is basically standard logical fallacies that everybody mm-hmm. uses. We then talk about the minefield, which is the ad hominem approaches that ev- that everybody right and left use and make the point that, you know, if you uh, we all argue like we're on social media 24 hours a day using yeah. these techniques that we know are never going to get you towards truth, that they're considered illegitimate in actual debate, but nonetheless are very useful to win uh, to have score cheap wins but then we talk about the efficient rhetorical fortress on the right um which is you know four steps that you don't have to listen to someone that you can dub a liberal or wokester um uh, journalists experts or you know if you're very hard right anyone who disagrees with trump um but on the left it's the perfect rhetorical fortress which partially because it grew up on academia it's layer after layer after layer after layer of ways to rationalize not having to listen to you and step one of Good. Well, actually, you know, you, you, it's amazing to me. It's been going through each time I do it. You come to the my next note is perfect, per, perfect rhetorical fortress. But but I want to and I want to I want to go there in some detail. So I want sure. I want to you don't have to rush through this because yep. that and the official rhetorical fortress, I think, are really worthwhile. Just, you know, loose. And you I'm glad you have the tip of your tongue. I have the notes on which pages in your book to go to to read it. But but um, but when you say but I want to come back to the administrator issue that you mentioned. Earlier. Oh, sure, I sure, want sure. To, I don't want to lose track of that yep. because it's not just administrators agreeing with students. And yep. that's interesting that you point out to me. What worries me more, and it's, we're, we're, we're jumping to things I thought we'd get to at the end, but that, since we may not get there, might as well do it now. Um, what worries me more, and I've seen this happen at universities and your, some of your examples in other industries the same, is not that people, that the administrators necessarily agree with any of it. They just yeah. look and say, what side is my bread buttered on? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to virtue signal if necessary, or just simply capitulate because it's easier. 
Yeah. If, if you're an academic, I, I mean, I view when you, you pointed out the two first parts of your book is one showing a cancel culture exists, then talking about what it is and how, and how we got there. And, 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 and the last part, which is really worth pointing out is how, what can we do about it? And I want to try yeah. and get there. But, but one of the, in my mind, uh, the real, the real, one of the deep problems, which will make this so difficult is that at the heart of this are leaders, be they academic leaders, mm -hmm. business leaders, or government leaders who simply do not have a spine or else make a calculated decision that this person's free speech rights or academic freedom aren't important. If I look about, well, letting, throwing that someone under, under the bus is not as important as the, as the good press I'll get for doing it or whatever it is, whatever calculated decision-making. And so I think that no matter what one does at the low, uh, from the ground up, that in that academic leaders and business leaders are really a, a, the central part of this problem. It's not necessarily that they even agree. I'm not sure they know what they agree with anymore because they, yeah. in order to, you know, to, to raise a million dollars a day or $10 million a day or whatever a president has to do now, you have yeah. to be a salesman, which means you stop knowing what you believe in and you, and you, and you decide what is going to, you know what's going to work and it, and and if if throwing if if agreeing with someone one day is fine when in private but you'll throw them under the bus the next day if if it looks good for your campus and so i want to you know comment on that because I, I think it's a it's a deep deep problem because i've sent, known so many university presidents almost none of whom have a spine the same with scientific leaders from the national institutes of health to the head of the department of energy and i mean I, you know i've been involved with all this and i just watch them either having drunk the kool-aid and saying yeah. When Francis Collins says the National Institutes of Health has been systemically racist for years, and yet I'm the director of it, and I'm not going to resign. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> to, so do you really to, believe this? Or yeah. Do you, do you really believe it, or are you just saying it? Way. To seeing university presidents, and you give so many examples, and I know per people individually who, the minute the mob turns on the university president, says, "Okay, you're out of here," because I don't want to deal with the mob. So yeah. Before we get to the perfect rhetorical fortress, I want you to comment on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there's just example after example of it because sometimes you do have the university president who just believes it all, and um, yeah. But more more often they have a somewhat more nuanced view of it that they um, will not defend in public when it's easier just to get rid of somebody. Yeah, it's um, just easier. And that was something that you saw. I mean, getting out of academia, James Bennett has a very long piece um, in the Economic version. Maybe a little bit too long, but mm -hmm. um, but an amazing piece about his time at the New York Times and about you know uh, Salzberger you know being very much on his side until he wasn't until he and wasn't until yeah, actually, the Bennett story which you go into in detail here is a really an interesting one. Sir, go on. It, it, it it's a powerful one, and uh, there was a the, there's an email that Rausch um uh, uh, uh you know shared from mm -hmm. Yale uh, you know about um, Dean Salovey you know during mm -hmm. the Erica, Erica and Nicholas Christakis uh, fiasco, fiasco back in 2015 you know, um, that is now public that he's saying like, listen, these students are just too fragile. They, they seem completely, you know, like, I don't think he uses the word crazy, but kind of like he, he doesn't know how to cope with them. He's afraid that they're too easily damaged. Um, but it was, it's very much like showing sympathy, um, with the idea that, 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 um, uh, the Christakis are the victim of a mob, um, mm -hmm. that's just angry in every direction. Um, and uh, not really taking it seriously, but then of course, how did Dean Salovey actually ask in the real, act in the real world? As if all of it was incredibly serious, had to be taken seriously, and was it took a while and, and a great deal of hesitance to really say anything 
uh, out even outwardly focused defending the Christakis's. Um, and that's another another trick that happens a lot is that they'll say something to the alumni yeah. um, that, that actually seems to make some amount of sense. But then what they're actually saying on campus doesn't really that doesn't really reflect that. It so, it's, be, yeah, I mean, you used to think that the people that should be in control are the people who are running the place and they should be. And, and, the, and to simply look at the students, and say, grow up, yeah. just grow up and uh, just grow up and stop being children would be simple, but it's just somehow unimaginable in this modern world where, the, where, where one could imagine the students going on social media and, 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 and again, the calculations that go on in, in administrators' minds about what the alternatives are to, telling, to, to just saying what anyone should say. And the last chapter of your book is something like the adulting of the American mind. It's all a matter of just growing up and stopping children at some level, but administrators are not even able to say that to the students where in the old days, you used to say that because they seem to be in control and, the, and for some reason they're not anymore. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, I, I think we're in a process of adjusting to social media that's really ugly. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe some of the spell is breaking, um, that, that essentially that appearance of a thousand person mob who's demanding that, you know, they'll burn down your school or you'll never get funding again unless you fire this one professor. One, that's usually a fraction of that actual size. It just looks like it's a ton of people. Yeah, it's usually, um, the, the, there's a very small, it always amazes me. It's a small, noisy group and it, you feel like the whole world is, but it's just a small, noisy group. And if you just realize that, it's a small, noisy group. Just let them go on for a little while, and they're gone anyway. And and, and it will pass. Yeah. That, that essentially, like those groups, they they one of the best ways to sort of frustrate a cancel mob is to say, "Oh, so you're saying that there's a serious problem with this employee? Okay, well, our policy is to actually have a three week cooling cooling off period before we investigate this. So we'll launch an investigation in three weeks. It'll it'll die off because they'll move on but, to something else. But here's but here's the thing, like, you know, on campus is that. Add, add to that, though, the administrator who might actually literally be in the room that is very much, you know, talking up the idea of like, oh, this is a disaster for the university and the students will be so angry and all of this kind of stuff. Like, so, so I think that the, you know, some of the and it was most on display after October 7th, um, because after the October 7th attacks, uh, you know, from what I know of a lot of these university professors and uh, presidents and what I've heard. I know a lot of them are actually very pro-Israel, and they were absolutely yeah. disgusted and horrified by the attacks. Yeah. And they came out with nuanced, sort of squishy opinions on this stuff initially, not because it's what they really thought, because they were afraid of their own students, administrators, yeah. and faculty. And if that doesn't speak volumes about the environment uh, for cancel culture on campus, the, the, the weirdly oppressive, when you have some of the most powerful people in the country, university presidents, afraid to say what they really think because they're afraid of the chilling you know, a, a effect of their own people, it really shows you like how dysfunctional this whole thing has become. And, and it's the norm that they were afraid to say what they think. But, um, the, uh, but yeah. again, we talked about beforehand, but we might as well get to it because uh, October 7th and yeah it, it demonstrated the you know it, it it was came after your book appeared but it's very timely and i know it's one of the reasons that we were talking about earlier there's been so much interest in the book lately yeah is it exposes this uh, all, all utter hypocrisy of the university presidents who in this particular case argue in on behalf of free speech for repulsive ideas which mm -hmm. is which is an appropriate thing uh, i'm in favor of who on every other case have done yep. exactly the opposite in particular, you know, I mean, this um, president and this very unimpressive president of Harvard, and she is unimpressive, I'm sorry, 
um, <laughs> everything I've learned about her and be impressed by her less uh, as I as I read, um, you know, has took an active role, as you probably know, in 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 suppressing um, free speech rights of people with whom she, she might have disagreed. The the um, was that economist's name at, at, at Harvard who who Roland Fryer? Yeah, Roland Fryer, who was who was a black economist who was who was uh, and Ron Sullivan uh, and Ron Sullivan exactly who were both yep. uh, Claudine Gay played a huge role in basically canceling them, and yep. and and uh, because she disagreed with them or they disagreed with her, but but I mean it's just but it's but at the same time it's not just Claudine Gay it's the fact it's and and so many cartoonists have made examples of this that somehow it's okay to. Um, I saw a spoof, I forget somewhere, you know, to <clears throat> someone was gonna have to leave the um the the seminar on on uh misgendering as violence to go to yeah. the kill the Jews rally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, the the double standards are spectacular in, uh, in, in, in a in, in a in a neutral way. And and that was the thing that um the the testimony, you know, the, the anti-Semitism hearing testimony. It was a little bit of a boy who cried wolf moment. Is that so much of it relied depended on um, those witnesses, and that was of course Penn, MIT, and um, uh, and Harvard, mm -hmm. to be taken seriously on 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 being serious and consistent on freedom of speech. Yeah. And nobody could because they're not. Um, yeah. And so McGill stepping that it was it was an interesting thing for for a First Amendment defender because. Um, the concern about the hearings was that the message sent by the hearings would be that you did not clamp down on free speech enough on your campus. Yeah. So I think people were kind of surprised that when McGill stepped down, mm -hmm. you know, when I wrote about it, I was like, this actually could be a great opportunity for free speech at Penn. Yeah. And what, what people didn't understand why we said that missed several things. One, Penn was second to last on our campus free speech ranking, right above Harvard, <laughs> um, which is a very rigorous you know, study that we do of 13 different factors, including the largest survey of student opinion ever ever done, the four biggest databases on professor cancellation, student cancellations, uh, deplatforming, and speech codes. And Harvard really did earn its dead last place, yeah. and Harvard and, and Penn was right uh, right behind them in terms of that. So they couldn't, so our ranking actually came up in the hearings a couple of times, like you, you you can't actually be taken seriously on this stuff because you weren't singing this kind of pro free speech tune when it was you know professors and students you didn't you didn't like better. The other thing that people missed was the fact that um, uh, that the the donors who were who were pushing to get rid of McGill actually had said some really great stuff about free speech, academic freedom being the path out of this ideology, uh, the path out of this kind of mechanical way of thinking, the path out of cancel culture. Um, and uh, we and we we knew that that was actually the proposal for fixing Penn. Um, yeah. And worst of all, McGill actually came out and said after the hearings, and this is why her going was absolutely a good thing. Oh, I was wrong. Um, we're going to delink our policies now from, or we're going to sorry, we're going to consider delinking our policies now from constitutional standards. And it's like, so <laughs> your administrators have always had way too much power over free speech on campus. You're now arguing that you're going to give them even more um, unlimited power over um, over free speech on campus. This is going to be a, like a genuine disaster. 
Um, and the good news is the 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 alumni group's um, uh, proposal, their their vision statement mm -hmm. for going forward. I have it up on my Substack, the eternally radical idea. Mm -hmm. It's great. Like it's talking about we need better viewpoint diversity, we need freedom of speech, we need actual discussion, we need less ideology. All of these kind of things that higher ed desperately needs. So we saw McGill stepping down is actually a positive development, and even more so because of the the vision statement. When it come to when it came to Claudine Gay, you know, I think there's lots of concerns about Claudine Gay, like you said, and yeah. I, the plagiarism one is really yeah. really striking to me. The yeah. idea that she has eleven papers and five of them eleven have... papers. I've graduate students have more than that, but anyway, yeah. that's I'm in physics, which is a different field, but still, yeah. Anyway. And five of them with 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 serious plagiarism in them. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it's a pretty bad fact. We actually. If she stepped down directly after the hearings, you know, like our concern was that then that would have sent the message that yeah, essentially what, what what she did wrong was not clamping down on free speech enough. Yeah. But let's see how she does does next year. I think she's yeah, exactly. Kind of I kind of think the credibility floundering. is gone, and we'll see it. We'll see it in a year or two, you know. And and that will indicate um, that it's important to. I mean, I, you know, well, we'll get in trouble for this, but um, uh, that when it comes to appointments at universities, factors like um, intellectual depth and, and scholarship are at least as important as identity when it comes to um, appointing to someone like the president of a major university. And, uh, yeah. and I think that maybe that will be the lesson. In fact, that's what I was going to ask you when we talked about it before. The, 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 as horrible, and it is the whole, what happened on October 7th, and there's nothing intrinsically good about what happened, but if some, but if, if something's going to come out of it, one hopes that besides hopefully the people will be released, et cetera, and eventually there may be yeah. peace, all of those things one might hope for. But, but when bad things happen, one can hope at least there's some lesson that makes the future better. And, and that may be, is, could this be this, the Sputnik moment that, Explode when you see the ridiculousness of what's going on on campuses and the student groups and and shouting people down and and at the same time as 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 we have these the the, the congressional testimony issue, it it does I think for many people who weren't aware of how utterly problematic it is in higher education right now and this hypocrisy of of claiming free free speech for speech you like and not free speech for speech you don't like it's really come to the fore. Could this could this be a defining moment in terms of of changing the direction of of where things are going higher? And, uh, I really hope so. I mean, I got very, frankly, depressed writing "Canceling of the American Mind." Yeah. Um, I one, imagine. I I didn't realize I was sticking my neck. I actually, sorry, I, I I it started really dawn on me that I was sticking my neck out once again on a position that will be hated by the kind of people who like to cancel people. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah it's scary. And the sheer nastiness. Every time I write about it, I worry. About, yeah. Yeah, and the and the sheer nastiness and drive and and the thing about cancel culture is they're you know they they they, they you know might hate us on these opinions but they'll yeah. find something else you know like dig something up from decades they, ago yeah, misrepresent it like yeah. you, you know like so you're you're making yourself you know very vulnerable yeah. the other thing that got that got me depressed was um and it particularly comes through in the um conformity gauntlet chapter uh, uh -huh. which is um, where i just kind of like layer <laughs> the yeah. pressures on top of each other yeah and then like looking at it, i'm like man like how does anybody get you know um, and i actually have the specific idea of someone who wants to be a scientist going to mit and yeah. all the different conformity inducing pressures they would have and then still not be able to get published if they're uh, even if their incredibly rigorous research you know is found to be harmful in well, some yeah way. if you happen to be trying to publish in nature human behavior 
if it might harm someone. You, yeah, you know, exactly. Before, I, I, oh. you, uh, let me make. I don't know if you've heard or read anything by me recently, but but in the royal in the Royal Society of Chemistry journal, it's even worse. The editors oh, were no. instructed. Oh, I you should. I'll send you the example. It was in this talk I just gave. They were instructed to to look at anything, and if anything was offensive, on the basis of of um, gender, political, uh, you, you you couldn't think of any uh, height physical attributes if anything i mean you, anything anyone could be offended by editors were were advised to consider whether to publish that whether that should be published if, if it offended on the basis of anything you could think of anything ever anyone being offended by this is the royal society of chemistry that's i mean insane. so it's an example that's even worse i think than the nature behavior one i think but anyway sorry go yeah. on and just the uh, it got me really like, wow, this like higher ed is is even is an even worse shape than I thought, which is saying quite a thing, given I've been yeah. watching the worst of higher ed for 22 years now. Yeah. Uh, and but one thing that, you know, we said the same. I said the same thing um, when we were on Bill Maher and he said the same just, yeah. as we're all saying here yeah. is that maybe this is a moment where people go, this is not OK. This is not sustainable. We have a, you know, clearly um, extreme extremely unreflective ideological environment that is utterly dysfunctional, like something needs to be done. I hope that this moment makes us realize that situation normal in higher ed is not sustainable. I even make the point, I would go, go back to the point of like, yeah, part one, they're now arguing that it costs $170,000 to educate a single student for a single year at many of these schools, yeah. which is insane. Um, and and if that's that's admitting you've done something wrong, yeah. <laughs> by itself. or admitting as you point out that many of these schools have more more like Yale has more administrators than they have students, right? Well, they have more employees. Than they have more have employees, students, yeah, because yeah. they have almost as many administrators as yeah. they have students. Um, but they but when you add in professors and, yeah. and administrators, yeah, they 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 have they have more uh, they have, they have more administrators. They they have more employees than they. That's have where students, the bulk. Is... I mean, I know when I've been writing about DEI, if you look at universities, so the bulk of the increase. Yeah. It not you know it, it, the huge increase in that infrastructure vast increases hiring of faculty student scholarships yep. any of the other expenses universities are dwarfed by the increase in this massive useless and counterproductive uh yeah. bureaucracy yeah with, uh, to, to, to mention Nicole Hannah Jones again she, she um uh called us out on not being not jumping to the defense of schools in Oklahoma who have been told that they have to reduce their DEI um, departments, their administrative DEI departments. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you did catch that what we've been saying is that DEI administrators time and time again are the ones who are repressing academic freedom and freedom yeah. of speech. It's like, so I can't really be like, oh, don't shut down the censors department. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, no, of course, like I, we're for that. I, I, yeah. I, to be clear, I think there are people who are incredibly sweet and kind people who do do DEI work uh, probably well -meaning, some of them, but like many things yeah pro probably some of them even have like an ideology that's very different than than the ideology that's the, that's the most problematic but if you're going to fix higher education and you can't the, uh, you have to it, 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 uh, reduce the administrative class and the first thing you have to start with are the people who are enforcing political uh, orthodoxy speech codes and everything else yeah exactly yep. that's the only I mean that's the only way as I say my opinion doing something about leaders who somehow have spine. The other thing and that you said that touched me, people have asked me in advance, how will this change? And I thought, well, maybe the other way is when, when most faculty members, having been a faculty member a long time, most faculty members just try and stay below the radar. 
They just try and get through their stuff. They don't, they think what's going on is nonsense, but they don't want to speak out because they know there's a problem. They just want to get their money, do the research and do, and, and go on with it. Um, when, when the bulk of those faculty realize that there, but for the grace of God, go they, that, that it's become so insidious that, that they could be next. I wonder if that's the, it's, if that's another, if that's, if that's another sort of bit of pressure that might change things you think no well here here, here's here's the case for pessimism though um about about the future of higher education um that my uh um uh that sometimes people caution me against talking about because we're trying to actually fix things um but i do think that this is more more the argument that we have to be considering other institutions smaller cheaper ways of doing this because um higher education is, is is in trouble long term is that by all the polling that we've seen and some that we've done ourselves at FIRE, we have a great research department at FIRE, um, the younger cohort of professors is more politically homogenous and more hostile to academic freedom um, and and free speech. And so the idea that kind of like, if we don't take this moment, it's definitely going to keep getting worse. Um, Even if we take this moment, it might keep getting worse in a way that makes it well, I mean, again, you would, I think you allude to it, but it's a, look, if, if the whole infrastructure is designed to hire people, if, if these people have to do a divert DEI statement in order to get the job, yeah, even if a lot of them are just doing it to get the job and they don't believe it, but you're going to naturally self-select for the next generation yeah. that's going to be then having bought into this. I mean, having bought into the, 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 the secular religious notion and, and, and of course they're going to be more homogenous and they're also going to be less you know, they make, got their job by being in a, in a, within a structure that that didn't promote free speech, but did quite the opposite, restricted it, and so therefore it's less likely they're going to be receptive to the idea of it, right? Yeah, well, and and and, I, and the, we spend some time in that conformity gauntlet chapter yeah. talking about. I mean, I think most intelligent people understand that there's no way to evaluate someone's quote unquote commitment to DEI that isn't a political litmus test but we even nate honeycutt actually even did an experiment you know about would you get past um uh the the reviewers if you had anything other than the most forgive the expression woke version of the of a dei statement and unsurprisingly he found out that that was the only one that would actually get you through um was the one that sounded the most like the ideology that's you know just um, being just being sympathetic is not good enough it won't get you through you you quote the berkeley study is 76 percent of the people for that biology position didn't even make it through to 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 have their research credentials looked at because they didn't do the di statement i assume you're aware of the recent the recent study of that came out of the national Association of scholars i guess of the di statements at ohio state you know where in the i think it was in the computer science department 30 percent of the score of a candidate was with their di statement i think it was in astrophysics 50 percent of the score when you assessed people was not was their diversity statement so if you didn't if you just were sympathetic and got zero there's no yeah. way you could ever get a position in it may have been may not have been physics but it was one of the science departments and 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 it's just uh it's uh, it's remarkable it's, yeah and, and 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 i think about the kind of personalities that would never even fill one of these things out to begin with you, yeah. you, you, I, I think about like what you know give Feynman yeah. <laughs> like yeah. fill out this DEI thing like <laughs> tell you tell you to go to hell yeah yeah no absolutely you tell you to go to hell and it was uh well it, that's a long yeah exactly and and I've had so many colleagues who overtly tell you that they're the people graduating they're more worried about their DEI statement than their research statement uh. even if they don't buy into it but they're much they spend much more time on it they're much more worried about it it's it's the universal not it's not the 
It's the norm, not the exception. Oh, yeah. In any case, look, we have about a half an hour left before yeah. I know you have to go. There's two things. I, I mean, you know, I only have 37 different points here, which got before. <laughs> But it's okay. I mean, there's, yep. there's, I, I, people can read the book, and, and, and. But what I would like to do probably is spend a little time on your notions of the left's per perfect. I interrupted you before because I knew I wanted to get to it. The perfect rhetorical fortress, which is really the the way that I mean, as you point out, cancel culture is really it's bad for many reasons, but it's bad because it stops the process of intellectual discussion and debate that's so central for a for a functioning democracy in principle and a functioning academia so the the perfect rhetorical fortress and the efficient rhetorical fortress which takes us to the right and left and then the rest of the time i want to talk about the last part of your book which is what to do which i think mm -hmm. is want to get to it sound, sound okay yeah absolutely okay so the perfect rhetorical fortress is something i've been talking about since 2015 when i started to notice that people on on uh, well I actually noticed it going quite a ways back particularly in san francisco and places like stanford yeah. Sure. that there were all these different easy dodges that people on the left could use to actually not have to address someone's argument. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, I think it wasn't until 2016 that the first time, you know, I was told to check my privilege was told to me by a non-white person <laughs> because I got very used to, oh, uh, check your privilege. That's something that, that's a tradition among rich white people to tell yeah. each other to do. Um, yeah. You know, it, it was. Um, and so step one of the perpetual fortress is just dubbing someone on the right. Um, and, and I say dubbing someone because I don't mean the 36% of people who are self-described as conservative, although surely they count. Actually, they'd probably be, you know, you're far right fascist or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's all the rest of us, if it's tactically convenient to not have to want to listen, uh, not to want to listen to us, yeah. um, that you just go, boom, um, you're right wing. And like the best example of this, uh, you know, it, it most recently is this amazing article by Marianne uh, Franks it, it, in the in the Free Speech Journal. She'd previously written an article saying cancel culture isn't real. Um, she just asserts this. That it just, you know, it doesn't actually look at data, it just says it's not real. Um, and the previous one cited no actual case law, by the way, and had citations to alternate. And it said this is the, this is a right wing Fox News plot. I guess that she didn't think that was you know, intense enough because people still <laughs> tend to believe this thing believes. So she has to insult us even more. So in the in this article that came out, we're now referred to as we're not just right wing, we're not just far right, we're not just fascists, we're neo confederates. If we believe um, uh, cancel culture is real, and and it's a mind blowing article to read. I I really actually recommend it to everybody. Um, and guess who are among the ranks of 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 uh, neo confederates and their dupes. The New York Times and the ACLU, because they both recognize that, you know, cancel culture is real and sometimes the left is part of the problem. Yeah, and they've but, been part of the problem, both of them. <laughs> no, certainly, but, yeah. But, but, but why is this, uh, you know, why are they actually extending this attack to the, uh, to, to the New York Times and the ACLU? Because it's always worked before. So step one of the perfect rhetorical fortress is incredibly effective. Uh, people hate being, I don't like being called conservative. I'm not. But at the same time, it doesn't stop me anymore. Um, it, it doesn't make me want to apologize to anybody. And it's I'm just getting used to it myself. I know. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it's like, less than it used to be. It, you know, it's like, <laughs> whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that's just step one. Then we go through the demographic funnel. You know, like, are you white? Are you cis? Are you gay? Yeah. Are uh, any of the, are you a man or a woman? Yeah, yeah. Et cetera. Um, and we give examples at each step of people being dismissed, usually for things that aren't related to anything that really should matter to that category. Yeah. Um, but then after you get through the demographic funnel, you're down to about 0.9% of the population that is um, uh, in, in transgender and non-white. Yeah. Um, but guess what? 
if you're even in that 0.9% um, and you have the wrong opinion, um, you can be accused of internalized misogyny, internalized racism, uh, or turn, um, internalized transphobia, which makes it perfect because it's like you you that's 100% of the entire population. And by the way, you could also call them right wingers for to, to boot. So you, already by like step six in, in the uh, perfect rhetorical fortress, you've got 100% of the population ways to not actually address their argument and ways to dodge out. And we're just getting started. You know, like we get to the um, if people get angry in public, we get to the darkly hinting that someone might that something else is afoot. Yeah, you is, know, is the, you, you're, you're at point step. six. You got point seven. Guilt by association, which is always association. Amazing, amazing thing. You know, I, I, I get I get accused of many things because the people I know, and they yeah. just think, well, you know, I I know some Republicans, and I'm not Republican. I know some, you know, I I mean, it's amazing to think about it. We all know yeah. people who are not us. <laughs> yeah. Well, th there was a, there was a more there was a moral Weigel um, uh, article that was critical of coddling of the American mind that we just thought was amazing because all it was doing, it was just it made one substantive argument that we didn't talk enough about student debt. And I'm like, OK, you know, one of the reasons why we didn't is because much to my surprise, it's, that was much lower on the list of concerns in student polling. Uh, but the rest of it was, oh, um, uh, Height and Lukianoff are soft right which means, of course, that we don't have to be listened to because we're right-wingers, et cetera. And the way this was proven was by the fact that, for example, we quote Solzhenitsyn in Coddling the American Mind, but guess who wrote the foreword to the new version of the Gulag Archipelago? Jordan Peterson. <laughs> and, and and therefore, we, we don't count. And meanwhile, kind of like, like my job is to get the word out. Jordan Peterson asked me to be on the show for this. I uh, For my book, we go on the show for this. Uh, sure, sure. You know, because done, that, actually, because I've done Jordan Peterson. He's in mine. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> which is like, yeah, I'm trying to reach people. Even though but, I disagree but, with him about a lot, but yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, but at the same time, like the, the, the tactic, though, of just being like, you know this person or you yeah. were on this person's podcast or whatever. That also gets you once again to 100% of the population of the planet that's ever lived. And, th and then this innuendo, you point out that number 11 is that uh, you were just getting to hinting darkly that something else is really going on. Yes. And that's, I, I find that perhaps the most, well, I don't know, there's so many worries there's, and things, there's but there's I no see way to it, it's it. so effective because especially in this modern neo-Puritan moral panic, all you yeah. have to do is allude that maybe there's something going on sexual. That because you know the what I'm thinking of it you didn't in your book but uh, I'm aware of it because I know him is uh, there was a great story by Michael Powell of the New York Times about the the James Webb Space Telescope how they how how there was a group trying to trying to uh, have the name changed because they felt he was homophobic and racist and a black physicist who was head of the National um, uh, Association of Black Physicists you know who else was at NASA at the time looked at it and discovered that there was no basis for any of that. Yeah. And he was not only was he excoriated for by these people who didn't know history, but had it. decided. But they said, "Well, we think there maybe there, maybe he was involved in this physicist might have been involved in some harassment at his old university because he moved universities." All you have to do is say that, and and it, and that that I see as an, you don't mention in your book, but I see that that the, the same thing with with uh, Roland Fire or. or you know, the notion that somehow there's a scientist, David Sabatini, who was who lost. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and remember, he went he was offered a job at NYU and all the people walked out. This is a guy who had a relationship with another woman. And 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 for reasons that may have been inappropriate, he was he was let go. I happen to think they were inappropriate. But 
but we went to NYU and all these people walked out because they said, oh, it's an unsafe environment if he's here. And, and, yeah. and, and, they, and, they, and they, they caved in. All you have to do is say that, is cast mm -hmm. sexual aspersions in the modern times and they're not even questioned. They're just, they're just automatically. And, and, and I think that's, that's an additional factor that's sort of being used here as a real uh, weapon, the weaponization oh, yeah. of accusation. Um, yeah, no, we had we had more about um, sexual harassment in there. It became such a rabbit hole. We ended up yeah. taking it up because it, yeah, it, you can't, it was, was going to end up being well, it's going to end up being its own chapter. You know, yeah. and we're like, OK, we want we don't want well, to and other people have done books on it, you know, like Heather and other people. Yeah. So, OK. Yeah. So those are the those are the tools that are used primarily by the left to basically disqualify anyone who doesn't agree with you. Uh, not just to disqualify you, but just stop the conversation, not allow the conversation uh, effectively to cancel. Yeah. Cancel the, the discussion, even if it's not just canceling the individual. Yeah. The tool, the right has been doing this in different ways for a mm -hmm. while. And as you point out, and it always amazes me, I like the fact that you use the word efficient because it always amazes me that in many ways, the right is much more efficient than the left. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe because they're more homogeneous, I don't know. But, uh, but why don't you talk about the what the efficient rhetorical fortresses that the right uses to disqualify people. We, yeah, so we have three chapters on cancel culture from the right, including yeah. you know, book bannings and, um, uh, and some of the legislative stuff in addition yeah. to that. Um, but we also talk, we have a chapter talking about the efficient rhetorical fortress, um, particularly, you know, uh, and we, in that chapter, which I think is very interesting, we talk a lot about, you know, Trump trying to cancel people in the news media, for example, yeah. and some of this kind of scary anti-liberal movements uh, on the academic right, which, yeah. which were, which, which worries as well. And the efficient rhetorical fortress is efficient. Um, it's three things. Can I W woke? Um, are you a journalist or an expert? Um, or are you uh, uh, anti-Trump? And in just four steps, it's efficient because you get rid of an awful lot of people you should probably be listening to. Um, and we and it's and one thing that might surprise you know some of your listeners is that Height and I get orders of magnitude, orders of magnitude, more hate mail from the right for coddling the American mind than we do for, from the left. Why? Because we're hard on Trump uh, for Charlottesville. Oh. Um, which I will never apologize for because that's appropriate. Yeah, it's appropriate. Um, and, and we wrote a, uh, you know, wrote something in Persuasion, sort of explaining this, you know, how we were right about this again. Um, but we, you know, that still is where we get the most, uh, get the most hate mail from. And we have had some people, um, you know, uh, like pan the book um, for the fact that it. It's engaged in, you know, both siderism, like mindless both siderism, because we all, all stick on the right. And it's kind of like, well, no, we're pretty clear that, you know, when it comes to corporations, when it comes to universities, particularly when it comes to students, that's, you know, that's wildly disproportionately cancel culture from the left. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we're not going to take on cancel culture from the right when it happens as well. But we're not saying this happens at like at, at the at, at the equal amount. We are concerned about the legislative stuff. Yeah, but was like I said, say, that's where you that's what you're not seeing. Well, not yet. Actually, it's not quite true. I, I you don't mention it, but I do think there's legislative stuff on the left that's worrisome. But the sure. more the, oh, the more explicit right. le legislative uh, work, especially where I live in Canada now. But anyway, um, uh, the most explicit worrisome aspect from the right is the legislative, the imposition of mm -hmm. rules on what you can and cannot say in academia. And 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 again, I, I, one of the things that you you raised here when you talk about the right and you talk about the efficient. Uh, fortress that I had that hadn't hit me. And it's an interesting point I want to bring up for people to think about. I never thought about the distinction between K 
K to 12 and universities. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm always hesitant in any case to restrict what kids are exposed to. But the mm-hmm. argument that we made that kids are captive audiences when they're K to 12 because they're not they're required to go to school. And therefore, maybe, maybe one should be therefore have one has more right to therefore have governments or parents say what they can what they can hear and not hear. But there's well, no it, argument and, and, for, sorry, go on. You'll say it and, 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 and it's more than that. You know, I, I'm a parent, uh, Maxwell and, and, and Ben, who I mentioned before, um, they're, they're at public yes. school. My middle name, by the way. Uh, uh, they, 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 <laughs> I was so embarrassed Maxwell, about it until I became a physicist. And, well, but what, <laughs> because Maxwell Smart and Maxwell Silverhammer ruined yeah, one of the greatest I, I know, but I still time. was, yeah, but it, it was James Clerk Maxwell that did it for me. Anyway. You know, wonderful, fascinating man. Yeah, yeah. Um, and absolute genius. You know, yeah. uh, Einstein's yeah. favorite scientist. And dead anyway. when he was, by the time he was your age. And my 48. Age. Yeah, I, know, I, know. I, I got, I, I, I was reading his biography when I was 48. Like, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. It's like Mozart, you know, that by the time. Yeah, it's just amazing. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Um, so, uh, w- 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 oh, yeah. So pub- public colleges, uh, pub- pub- sorry, public uh, uh, education mm-hmm. is taxpayer funded. It's mandatory. Yeah. Um, like, so you have to send your kid to some school. You can get you, you can get out of it now in a variety of ways, um, but it's mandatory. Um, it's publicly funded and it's your kids. And on those three circumstances, you bet there, there there should be some say from parents and and uh, and the democracy itself. The democracy to, that's paying for it. That's that's paying for it to say about like what what should be taught. Um, so it's always been the case. Always been the case that politics has been part of what the curriculum is in the United States. And mm-hmm. so like people pretending like, oh my God, politics is now, it's like, no, it's just politics you don't like. Yeah. And actually to be clear, some a lot of politics I don't like is now actually part of the curricular debate. But the idea yeah. that kind of like, oh, it's it's between this and free speech. It's like, no, it's just a question of whose politics actually dominate it. And one thing I wanna caution everybody about, if you think you're mildly sympathetic to the idea that um, K through 12 teachers should be the only ones deciding this kind of stuff, that's insane. Yeah. Because the biggest problems that we've seen um, in higher education and K through 12 have come from education school graduates. To be clear, I know a lot of lovely, wonderful, thoughtful, caring, smart education school graduates. Yeah. But as far as being incredibly ideological and narrow and sort of, you know, forgive the expression, captured, education schools are like the sine qua non of that. Oh, yeah. And, I, I have to say, I when I when I last taught at ASU, I, I started to work with the education school because I thought that would be a good thing to do. And boy, was it an awakening. I stopped yeah. that pretty quickly. Uh, so, so tell, 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 tell me more what your, your experience. Well, well, I just, well, the, <laughs> no, this is for you. Well, you and I'll chat for the, the I, oh, I want sure, to hear sure. from you. You and I'll chat yeah. more. I hope we'll have a lot more time to chat because there's a bunch of things I want to talk to you about uh, aside from what we're doing now. But it, yeah, but it is a problem. So go on. Yeah. To, yeah. So yeah, so K through 12 um, uh, 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 curriculum are decided in a combination of parents, votes, et cetera. And, and honestly, I think they should be as long as it's still mandatory. Like they yeah. basically... High, uh, public education became something that wasn't publicly funded or mandatory, then that's an entirely different ballgame. Yeah. Um, when it comes to libraries, though, that's a little more interesting because there's yeah. a case on point called Pico from 1982. Yeah. I was, it was moved 1982 or 83. Um, and it was a pure, it was a decision that didn't have one clear opinion. But what we take from it is the idea that you shouldn't be removing books from libraries just because you don't like the political point of view. Yes. Now, no, no. And we think that's a good policy. Now, people on the right also get mad at us because you're saying like, so you're, you're saying that people should be, you know, and this is I'm referring to a real book here. You, you think our kids should be reading, you know, a book where that teaches you w- with a very graphic graphic about how to use a butt plug. 
Yeah. It's like, no, actually, because you could actually, you could always, always, and you actually are required to consider age appropriateness. Yeah, so age yeah. appropriateness is the normal part of the discussion about what yeah. should be in a K through 12 library. And that's okay. most of the debate right now. But I do think it makes a lot of sense that if you're sending, you know, police officers to arrest people at public libraries for having, you know, books, which does happen, by the way, not very often, but it does happen. That's a problem um, from a free speech perspective, to say the least. And yeah, because the, the places voluntarily go to the library. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and, and this is like and this is face. kind of like the hierarchy of the greatest concern. Yeah. When you're having limitations on bookstores, on private bookstores, that's the biggest First Amendment issue. Yeah. When it comes to public libraries, that's a big issue too. K through twelve libraries, there's a lot more sort of give and take on what's supposed to be allowed, but we still don't like the idea of you know uh, uh, of removing books you know and uh, just on the basis of not of disliking the political point of view however some of those cases are frustrating as well because there was one that got written up where it was a poem for the inauguration i think it was amanda gorman's poem mm -hmm. from like obama's um inauguration, inauguration. Mm -hmm. and it was available to third graders um and a parent complained about it for being partisan now the uh, yeah um, and what the and the school looked into it because they looked into all the complaints and said, you know what, this is third graders aren't even going to understand this. Yeah, yeah. This is more appropriate in the uh, in the part of the library for the seventh and eighth graders. And this got treated like it was a book ban. And it's like, well, no, they, they make decisions on the basis of whether or not something's appropriate for third graders and eighth graders all the time. Like yeah. you're really reaching on this one. But we do believe we do believe book bans are real. As, but as far as like when you actually factor in age appropriateness, like the actual there, there are less of them than sometimes you might be led to believe. Okay, let's let's move because we only have 15 minutes left about. Yep. Let's you, let's talk about what to do, because I mean, it's a, it, I wish there was a magic bullet or a silver bullet. Um, basically, there as far, I went through and, you know, listed the different sort of there's, you know, raising kids um, somehow dealing with leadership and executives reforming higher education and mm -hmm. um and ultimately um um growing up so let's let's go, let's uh let's let's go through them y you talk about raising kids um why, why don't you give some of the examples of what one can do and some of which are out of coddling it's true but yeah uh, a, a lot of that um, is uh, is out of coddling everything from like making sure that they have unstructured play making sure that they actually have some you know modicum of independence that they're um, not shielded constantly from anything that might be difficult for them because that's you know a terrible policy. But for stuff that's um, specific about canceling, we focus a lot on trying to raise kids who are not cancelers. And that's a little different because most people usually ask us, how do I keep my kid from being canceled? Yeah. But and, mm -hmm. and it's more important in our opinion to make sure that they're not cancelers. Yeah. To, to have to have the kind of kid who believes in the golden rule, you know, um, the I idea. My, or I think the platinum rule, that's one thing where I get away from, I, I don't like the golden rule. I prefer the platinum one. But... Is, is that treat people as they would prefer to be treated? Yeah, instead of, yeah, because how do you know how they want to be treated? Yeah, I prefer yeah, people, no. people as they would prefer to be treated, not as you think you'd like. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so, so... I, 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 I definitely do know that distinction, but we talk about the golden rule in the sense of like, wouldn't you want someone to have your back as well? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah sure. The, the idea of something as simple as stand up for your friends, which kind of feels like it shouldn't have to be said, uh, but that's that's the whole thing about cancel. Boy, culture. do I wish when I've been, yeah, in the, on the wrong side to have friends stand up for me is such a means more to me than almost anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Raising your hand and simply saying uh, so-and-so is a good person you know, leave them alone. <laughs> okay. um, it puts a target on your back, but I think that target becomes less and less effective the more people actually are willing to say, you yeah. know, 
And we're nowhere um, near there yet, unfortunately. But yeah, no. You get a lot more in private. Think, you get a lot more support in private than public. Yeah. 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 So, so definitely, you know, we think that's part of it. One thing that we we we, we um, interviewed Pamela Paretsky, um, uh in the um, for, for the book, and one thing that she likes to point out is, you know, stop thinking of your friends as allies, uh, because even though that's that's um, treated as something that sounds very cool and nice and something that people should strive towards. Allies aren't friends. Allies okay. are, you know, temporary tactical relationships yeah. in order to achieve a political end that could be ended or began at any time. Like that's not a friend. A friend yeah. is someone who you trust and who can say hard things to you if you need to hear them, um, and that you get forgive uh, are, are forgiven uh, yeah. or can be forgiven. Um, you know, we need genuine friendships, not 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 allyship. And they can disagree I, too. That's the point. They can also say yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> it, 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 it's a key part of having friends. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. Like how often I rely on my friends to be like, "Am I wrong here?" You know, and yeah. how often it's like, "Yeah, Greg, you got this one wrong." I'm like, "Okay." Well, you, well, you write revive the golden rule, encourage free unstructured time, emphasize the importance of friendships, teach kids about differences, practice what you preach, and um, and then. I think to avoid the three great untruths, why don't you say what the three great untruths are? Yeah, the three great untruths, that's from Codling the American Mind. Yeah. And this is our idea of negative advice, like the idea of uh, people won't listen to um, uh, do this precise thing, but they are a little more open to the idea of, okay, whatever you do, I don't care what you do, just don't do the following three really dumb things. Yeah, And, uh, and we call these the great untruths. These are the, the, the terrible pieces of advice, and they are in order. Um, uh, oh, wait, um, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Always trust your feelings. And life is a battle between good people and evil people. And if you believe all, th uh, you know, any of these things, they're one, they're not backed up by ancient wisdom. They're not backed up by uh, current thinking and psychology, and they will make you miserable. And in this book, we actually add a fourth, which is no bad people person has any good opinion, um, which is essentially the idea of the way we behave uh, when you think of cancel culture as an arguing tactic, that my goal is not necessarily to refute you. It's just to point out that you're a bad person. And then somehow magically, that means that you don't have any valid opinions. Yeah. And that's so much the way we argue right now, which, of course, you have to point out. And I always give the example of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was an awful person. Mm -hmm. um, he, was, uh, he was probably mentally ill, but he was also terrible to his friends. He was terrible to his mistress. He gave up something like six kids to orphanages mm -hmm. to die um, that which I didn't actually fully put together that that was the standard thing that actually happened to kids given uh, given away to orphanages. That doesn't mean he was wrong in his philosophy. Yeah. Now I think disagree with him a lot about aspects of his philosophy, yeah. but that but the the fact he was you know a horrible person is uh, is not an argument towards him being wrong. Yeah, this and in fact the reason I want to bring them up they come from coddling, but they really are the basis of of a lot of the cancel culture argument. They are the untruth of fragility that somehow words are harmful and somehow and people are never going to survive being called whatever word you want to call them somehow yep. they're not going to be able to survive it and 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 then uh you know the untruth of emotional reasoning you know uh uh, uh as you say bad people are, are not cannot have good ideas and the untruths of us versus them it's the, which is power and oppression i mean all of those are the basis of a lot of what's going on in cancer culture and uh and so, yeah, so to do that, to try and avoid those fallacies in kids. And, and I would, to, I would uh, again, once again, not just teach kids about differences, but I'd put that sixth one in, teach, teach kids to keep questioning. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, know that, and, and know that it's based, that not knowing, that saying I don't know is not a bad thing, but a good thing. Absolutely. And so for me as a teacher or as a 
you know, with a history of teaching, that to me is one of the most important things I think I would add. And one thing that where there's more detail um, outside of the book than in it is that we have a whole chapter on K through 12 reform, yeah. and that's largely sort of um, based on uh, an article I came out with called "Empowering of the American Mind," uh -huh. which are principles for higher education reform. Uh, sorry, for for uh, K through 12 reform, and basically, you know, virtue number one is epistemic humility and intellectual humility. And this is, you know, people will do this to me sometimes because I'm a First Amendment lawyer. It's like, oh, you know, First Amendment lawyer, but you're a parent. How do you, like how much free speech do your kids have? And I'm like, well, I'm training them to understand that the first step in, in utilizing free speech and really appreciating it is knowing how little you know. Yeah. And it, I, it's nice that I could ask my kids. It's like, what kind of person thinks they know everything? They're hesitant to say stupid people because yeah. like that's uh, that's the S word now. But they're like, no, no, well, nobody who claims that actually knows all that much. I'm like, yes. I, I have to <laughs> tell you the story that a friend of mine, I won't say who, who, who was on a who was on The Apprentice with Donald Trump oh. told me one of the things that amazed him the most is Donald Trump came up to him and said, you're one of the three people in the world I know who, who is smarter than me. And he's, and as he pointed out, anyone who is smart would never say anything no. like that. Yeah, it's just, uh, anyway. Next, uh, leadership, you know, I want, we've got, we, we, I'm, I'm amused that, that in your uh, quote at the top of this case study of publishing, you quote Adam Bellow, who yeah. is a warm spot in my heart because when, when at, at Tom, one of the times I was canceled from publishing, um, I, the only, I was almost self-published after that, but Adam Bellow eventually agreed to publish uh, uh, my, uh, my, my book and, and uh, the last two books actually I've written. So, uh, so I'm, I, you know, he practices what he preaches in that regard. But the idea of, of this, and you talk about executive leaders and, and Penguin and basically the awful experiences that people have had from that uh, woman, Jeanne Cummins, who wrote American Dirt, and somehow because she wasn't Mexican, her book was 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 destroyed. And then and then you know to to Woody Allen, who 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 uh, who wrote a book that was you know going to be in big demand, and then the publisher sort of kowtowed to this mob by saying somehow people yeah. shouldn't be allowed to hear what he has to say. Um, but it's but that publishing example it was just a microcosm of what of what goes on in 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 academia. Um, the fact yeah. that that um, and and I guess the le the lesson I have you give a bunch of rules for executives hire more broadly define what you stand for face face problems in small groups practice what you preach but again I would add be a leader and grow a spine I don't, yeah I, I mean not these people are afraid to be leaders in many places for whatever reasons whether it's economics or 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 their own fear of being canceled later on. Yeah, no, no, d definitely. And leadership matters, you know, all throughout we, 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 that chapter on um, like how to keep your um, uh, corporation out of the culture war. One thing that uh, I, I want to sort of turn that into an article um, and emphasize the fact and also make sure that you're not hiring cancelers, because th that that is something that um uh, after coddling came out, business leader after business leader contacted me in height, you know, saying, uh that the new students that you're talking about the, the coddled even though i don't love that word are showing up at our uh at our corporations and it's it's disastrous like small interactions are shutting down the organization for days as they lead to hand-wringing sessions and and and, and uh those uh, those town hall meetings that are really just being shouted down kind of and and, and browbeaten um and one of the things I, you know, they kept on saying to me was like, and, you know, because of this, we're not hiring, we don't hire people from the Ivy League anymore. 
And every time someone said something like to me, I'm like, do me a favor, say that out loud, say that so everyone can hear it. Because if Harvard starts getting that they're producing a product that people don't want to work with, that actually might be the thing that gets them to to, to take reform more seriously. Um, well, and right, now we'll I think get the parents to then, I mean, the point is the Harvard's trying to get the parents to send their kids. And if the parents don't think sending their kids to Harvard is an automatic road to whatever they want, yeah. they might not send them to Harvard. And you say something there too. And I, you know, I know we're really getting close to the end here and I'm sorry, because we could go on, but you, you talk about with employers, hire people who don't necessarily have university degrees. And one of the things you don't, stress and i wanted to add yeah. and get your impression of this there's another good reason to do that because yeah. as you know it's almost it's coming close to two to one it's now 50 percent that ma- young males are not going to college yeah. anymore and and there we're going to have a society where young males are severely disadvantaged if people are only hiring people with 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 university degrees uh because in, it's 60 to 40 60 percent 40 percent in most places but it's even higher in a lot of a, a lot of places young males are for whatever yeah. reason and i think there are good reasons leave not deciding that university is not the right place for them and yeah. so it, it, you're closing yourself to an important segment of, of society if you start only hiring people who have university degrees and and point out that maybe there are alternatives you know when, yeah. when i lived i spent a year in switzerland when i was at cern and I was shocked because I thought everyone should go to college. I mean, it was, yeah. I just I bought the Kool-Aid. And then I saw in Switzerland, they stream people. Now, it's, of course, you it's not, they don't force you, but they stream things. So only 15% of the undergraduate population or the high school population is directed towards college because they also have apprentice schools. They also have, mm-hmm. and for most people, you know, those are the right places to be. And, yeah. and but we have this notion somehow that college is the only way to be, to, 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 learn what you need to learn to be an adult which is uh certainly not the case yeah and 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 uh, and the same time when you're paying this much uh you know to go in the first place and everybody gets a 3.9 you know yeah. that, which is the average gpa at harvard which i can't i i, I can't say loudly when enough. i taught at go. yale i was going to add this i i once got called to the mat for by a dean a college dean for giving a student a c saying mm. you know he's a yale student you know yeah I'm, well, look, the, and that's part of growing up. I, I look, I know it's the end, and I want to thank you for 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 this and everything else. And I, I want to have a long conversation with you pr- about a bunch of things. So maybe we'll have a chance to have a Zoom, you and I. But thank you for the work you do. Thanks for writing this. I hope we we did a little bit of justice to it. There's so much more we could go through, but it's been a real pleasure. And thank you, Professor Krauss. Uh, the the um, <laughs> that's a, that's that's a Catholic school in me. I'm gonna yeah like. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and uh, hopefully your viewers will check out thefire.org. You know, we're doing amazing work. We're doing great research. And certainly, if you if you do still want to send your kid to a college, um, our campus free speech ranking will show you which ones to avoid and which ones are still pretty good. And as my and I've said this before, but as my late a- atheist friend Steve Weinberg, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, said, "You're doing God's work." <laughs> I am an atheist who loves religious imagery, uh, imagery too. I okay. often talk about you, being blessed. You take care. It's a real pleasure. I look forward to it again. You Absolutely. take care. Bye-bye. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit 
originsprojectfoundation.org.